Welcome to Criminalize, a podcast for the criminalized masses. I'm your host, Brian Erskine, along with my co-host, Jason Jarvis of the Jarvis Garcia and Erskine Law Firm, also known as the Longhorn Law Firm and Abogados ATX. We're not giving our legal advice, only discussing general topics. Guests have given permission to Criminalize to broadcast their voice and or writings over the air or on its social media. There are no guarantees that the legal issues discussed are fully accurate. Issues in fact discussed are not covered under the attorney-client privilege. You're advised to seek legal counsel as soon as possible concerning your legal question or concern. You also understand that most of criminalized guests and hosts do not practice outside of Texas. So seek advice from a lawyer in your state. And have fun. What's up, guys? Are we on? Yeah, we're good. Record button's on? The record button is on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hit that. This yeah, it's good to go. Looks like everything's working. Uh, won't waste anybody's time here. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I and love that excuse. I thought that that was a brilliant, because yeah. Brian, I mean, Brian's so quick on his feet. Yeah. And have you ever, you've seen him in trial, obviously. Yes, yeah. I'm like amazed that, I'm like, damn. I would not think of that. Of that. I like, would boom, be way boom. too honest. About I would be, yeah. <laughs> I didn't I, I would like, uh. Guys. For those playing at home, uh, technical difficulties arise occasionally, and you try to figure this stuff out. And of course, uh, you know, the first time for everything and putting all this together, it's, there's a lot of stuff there's going on. You know, there's a lot, uh, and it we want to make it just as easy as possible. Sometimes you miss some of the most mundane things, like uh, hitting the record, record button. button. <laughs> <laughs> the big turns red. out that's important. <laughs> R- R- yeah. REC. Big red, yeah, REC. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, tangentially, and, and, and before I know we're, we're going to introduce you, you have right. a lot, and I'm really excited to hear Brian was talking ad nauseum about you. <laughs> Not nauseum to me, but uh, I, I, I was really, really excited because I'm really impressed with your credentials. But before that, I, w- I wanted to, that just piqued my curiosity, the record button, because you hear kids, especially like millennials these days, like are so quick to record on their phone. Right. Certain incidents, you know, funny things, yeah. whatever, the police situations. Yeah. situations. I can't do it. Like, I, I remember I was like trying to like <laughs> record my dog doing something cute or whatever. I'm like, oh, like fumbling around. And I'm like, oh, shoot, no. So I, by that now, I'd, I'd already like the somebody would be shot. Right. It would you be know, done. Somebody, it would be done. It would be done. It would be done. Yeah. How, how do they do that? Is there like a, anyway, maybe because I'm just, I'm, I'm now, Coming to terms with my my age and mortality. Yeah, you look good for fifty six, right? Yeah, <laughs> thank you. I, I eat well, sleep. Yeah, sleep. Thirty seven. Thanks. Fifty six. Ryan yeah. just turned thirty. Speak, speaking of old people, Ryan oh. just turned thirty seven. Thirty seven. Couple days ago. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Getting on. Moving up in the world. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, his his shirt got a little tighter. Yeah. His, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, Anyway. Well, Whitney, welcome. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you very Thanks much for, for entertaining our uh, bullshit and camaraderie all at the same time. <laughs> right. uh, so, Whitney Bliss, uh, give us a little background on your uh, DJ name. That's know, a cool yeah, name. It is. <laughs> Please with it. Wicka, yeah. wicka, bliss. Bliss. Uh, <laughs> the WB, yeah. Yeah, the WB, yeah. <laughs> uh, to give us a little bit of background on your credentials and, uh, you know, what you're all about. Yeah. Um, so, I'm a licensed professional counselor. I got my master's degree in counseling from St. Louis University. I'm born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. Billiken. You're a Billiken. Billiken. Made up mascot. Yeah. Great. That's it. I love that. I, I love it. Uh, slew. Yeah, as slew. everybody. Yeah. Uh, slew. Yeah. 
So I was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, moved down to Texas in 2010, so have been here almost a decade now. Uh, and my undergraduate is actually anthropology and history, so like a lifetime ago I was going to be a forensic anthropologist and decided for the good of humanity I should not be around dead things all day. You're going to uh, be like Indiana Jones? A little bit. I worked on an archaeological dig site, yeah. Oh. It was really fun, but mostly like played with bones. So. Uh, cool. That weird girl, yeah. <laughs> that weird girl. <laughs> Were you that girl that always like... Like brought dead things and, and oh, no, no, like, no, no, I don't like soft tissue. I just wanted like the osteological. Oh, okay. What, once they yeah, decompose, yeah. And well, then we're good. We're good. Then, so, right. yeah, that was interesting to find that my forensic anthropologist teacher from Mizzou actually ended up here at Texas State in the same town. So I like emailed him and he remembered me. So I got to go to the body farm and that was awesome. Uh, uh, the body farm. Yeah, you can donate your body after you die. Yeah, and San Marcos, they have like a huge field of varying degrees of decomposition. So decomposition, so they can that is they can study. Yep. And so you can, yeah, you can actually donate your body. When it's you called die. the body farm. Mm -hmm. Yes, really important work. Yeah, it really no, is. no. I mean, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. You're, you're, yes, I don't yeah, mean totally. to. No, I mean, it's just it's fascinating. Be flipping yeah. about it, but that is or, or or blase. But that is that is that's crazy. I mean, that's yeah. You know, I'm trying to picture like I'm just picturing, you know, those more stainless steel uh -huh. sterile ta tables, just boom boom table after yeah. table like bodies is that right. no um you have them like in different areas um okay. submerged above ground you know sometimes in cages to see like sun bleached sometimes if you're burnt to see like because different kind of striations happen in the bone depending on like what you know were they dead when they were burnt were they alive when they were burnt um it's really it's really kind of fascinating like a lot of the things you can go into like there's still a part of me that'll always that is interesting peek out about somewhere that. in varying uh Degrees of undress or in right. costume, right. they got a whole. How does that affect the decomposition? They got a whole were... field full of furries just to see how that whole thing goes down. Can right. inevitably, some they're going to die in that costume. Some of them, right? You know, <laughs> you need to know what that looks like. I don't know if you're joking or you're serious. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll let know. that be a mystery. Yeah. Okay, there may be furries. <laughs> Maybe furries in the field. Um. <laughs> Something for everybody. You know. We don't want anybody to feel left out. And you San Marcos. There was something eerie about San when you drive to San Marcos. It's a <laughs> seven eight yeah. six six. The body six, farm right? and the mermaid <laughs> parades. That's no, what kidding. it is. So, so I mean, it is ready. Speaking of the WB, it's ready for like a, its own TV show about some kind of you know like teen angst, uh, necromancing, body rising, <laughs> some kind of thing. Welcome to the seven eight six six six. Eight six six six. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. It's well, right for a Stephen King novel or something. That's right. Yeah. Uh, where was that place? If you're a fan of Stephen King, he would always... Uh, Castle Rock, I think, was one of the locales in Rhode Island, I believe, right? Or... Yeah, I, I never, because that was the new show they did too. Right. Which perfect. I didn't catch, but I, it's really it was, good. when I was a little girl, I grew up, um, my grandparents had a condo in Estes Park. So I remember when I was a little girl going to the hotel, <sighs> which was where he stayed when he was inspired to write The Shining. And I just remember being a little girl and thinking it was so cool. Like I could see. And I bet you look like one of those little girls in the closet. <laughs> With a little dark hair, right? <laughs> you had a twin. From the photo from Diane Arbus. Riding a three-wheeler. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> chasing yeah. people around the hotel it's actually a beautiful hotel it's, a beautiful it's hotel. gorgeous they have a piano there uh that was played by john philip souza mm. right in the front foyer and it also has like one of the biggest whiskey um collections I mean, oh right they have hundreds of them they have a binder page and page and page and page of all wow. these whiskeys in their bar it's oh, like cool floor to ceiling you know yeah, probably 50 feet back. long yeah wow and where is this again 
Estes Park, Colorado. It's right at the yes, um, edge right. of Rocky Mountain National Park. So it's beautiful because you could just go hiking all the time in the mountains, which I loved as a little kid. I'm going to have to. That's on my bucket to do, list. Yeah. To-do list. Yeah. Definitely worth it. I'm yeah, sure for sure. It seems a little different now in Colorado. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you mean. I have no <laughs> idea. Uh, um, yeah. So, um, so, yeah. So anthropology and history and my undergraduate. And then I kind of switched and decided to go into counseling. So I worked for four years at an inpatient facility for eating disorders that was privately owned and trauma-based, which is when I really fell in love with trauma and working with trauma. Um, and so then after four years of working there, um, had a period of burnout, like was working um, full-time and turning full-time and doing grad school full-time. So oh. like really crisped wow. out. Um, so it's one of the things I talk about with like helping professionals and talk to attorneys and like um, hospital staff. Um, and I work with first responders a lot to talk about um, helpers taking better care of themselves. Because I think if we're trying to expect better processes from these systems, we have to take better care of the components of those right, systems. Right. Um, yeah, it's like a it's like a car, right? You right something starts malfunction, you need to we need to up, take care of it, right? maintain. Because um, I I think it's like yeah, burnout's really toxic, and that can lead to a lot of lack of empathy and ability to think complexly, um, and take in kind of greater systems. So I think that leads to poor care. Um, so then came down to Texas and then um, got a job working at Hayes Caldwell Women's Center. I was a sexual assault counselor there, worked for six years, worked with um, adult men and women who were survivors of sexual assault and sexual abuse. I was the coordinator for a hospital response team. So we would go to the ER to attend to survivors of a domestic violence attack or um, had been recently sexually assaulted and wanted to get the sexual assault forensic exam done and would help sit with people. Um, and then was also the coordinator for Hayes and Caldwell County sexual assault response team. So working with the nurses who perform those exams, as well as the DAs um, and local law enforcement. Um, and really during that time, really started to kind of fall in love with being able to give trainings and talk about trauma and like how our body and brain respond. Because I think um, I was especially seen amongst survivors and the community which I think translates into juries, um, a lot of confusion about responses that seem counterintuitive when really I feel like all of these responses are very intuitive to situations that aren't reasonable or rational. You know, these are things that shouldn't happen, unfortunately, you know, as frequently as they do. Um, and our systems respond to that scenario. Um, so, yeah, so through that, um, connected with Brian and did some um, expert testimony in a handful of cases during kind of punishment phase of trial to just talk about the long-term effects of um, kind of trauma and assault. I've, yeah, I've really enjoyed training. I've done like training in internal family systems, was trained in somatic experiencing that works a lot with the shock trauma and the nervous system, trained in EMDR, which also deals with shock trauma. Um, and then I'm recently really diving deeply into um, just got certified in neuroaffective relational model, NARM, which is working with developmental trauma, which I think we're seeing a lot it's of. It's kind of one of those words you probably shouldn't make into an acronym. It's like, right, Narm. we kept coming up with like t-shirt <laughs> ideas like in the training. So I think my favorite was Chronicles of Narmia. So we're just like <laughs> trying to think of like, how could we make this a t-shirt? Um, but really I have fallen in love with kind of that a broad scope, which I know a lot of people don't like. Uh, what was it? Neuro? Neuroaffective relational model. Neuroaffective. Yeah, which really dives into looking at developmental trauma because some of these incidents we're talking about, there's a shock trauma element to that. 
um, like a high motor vehicle impact, right? There's a shock trauma there where there's a shock to the nervous system mm-hmm. where we take on more energy than we're able to release, which causes a lot of symptoms that we see in our system. But the developmental trauma is entering when there's a traumatic event that's happening with somebody that we have a deep relationship and rely on. So let me, uh, let me, let me throw a little scenario out. Brian plays, Brian's a keeper in our indoor soccer team. And Brian got hit in the cookies uh, with a ball. Right. Going real hard. Yeah. Why is this your favorite story? <laughs> it's hilarious. It's funny for me. Is this, I, this comes up every show, whether or I, not somebody. Yeah. Like, First time came up. Actually. Yeah. Okay. But I do tell this story a lot. A lot. Okay. Um, and I felt really bad. As he you can tell. About this, I can tell. There's <laughs> a lot really of sympathy happening. That's just kind of how like I react to. Right. Nervous laughter. Yes. You know. Situations that are and, and it's gotten me in trouble with my girlfriend before because I, I would imagine. laugh to right. I'd laugh like let's, let's say deflate the situation. We're having an like, argument or okay. she's mad about something and I just start laughing yeah. and it, she seems like like she's like oh you think that's funny right and or like seeing Brian get hit there I'm like I felt I'm you know I'm not a sociopath I felt empath- yeah. I've been hit there before and I'm like oh man but I start laughing yeah so I don't know what is that a pressure release. Okay. We have a lot of activation. One way we can do this is laughing. So sometimes you'll see that through survivors too. Who, I mean, like I've been in safe exam rooms and like a survivor, you know, who's having this kit done and giving a history starts laughing. Wow. You know, okay. and so, and some people are like, That's what's weird. that about? Yeah, what's you that know? about? What's so funny? Um, right. Yeah. And I mean, like some of the things we release um, from the HPI axis, so the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal gland, um, which the amygdala can communicate to, amygdala being the fear center of the brain. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so the amygdala just will sense anything that it thinks is fear and then immediately starts dumping a bunch of hormones up to 96 hours. Like adrenaline. Adrenaline being one of them. Like so cortisol, stress hormone. Cortisol. Um, is that can, the one that gets you fat? Kind of? Well, it's a stress what hormone. So the cortisol doesn't play nice with a lot of parts of us. It eats away at the cortical lining of our brain. Oh. Um, so this is also why... You so know, they say stress kills? Yes. It also, I mean, we're also seeing like with telomeres or telomeres, which is at the end of our chromosomes, which help replicate new cells, it shortens them. So we literally talk about shortening your life. Oh. So this is when we talk about stress and these things, because this is all kind of related to being in activation or your gas pedal, your sympathetic nervous system. And when you see animals in the wild, we're designed to go into gas pedal and then we're designed to go into break and come down and relax. But humans, we're stuck in gas a lot of the times, right? Yeah. Um, and it's really having a lot of wear and tear on our nervous system and bodies. And we're seeing a lot of these symptomatic reactions that are coming up as a result of being stuck constantly in gas and not being able to relax and release that energy. Wow. That's really, I mean, I, I could talk to you for days on end. I, I'm watching this show on Netflix that just came on um, about the mind mm-hmm. and how, you know, specifically memory. Mm-hmm. Have you heard about it? No, no, no. What is it? Oh. Of course, I would. <laughs> I even made a mental note. Right. See how bad my memory is to memorize the name of the show because I knew we were going to talk to you. Yes. And I didn't do it. But anyway, <laughs> we'll uh, add it in the show notes. It's fine. Huh? Yeah. We'll add it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh, it, it'll come to me, or if not, I could always. We have Google the technology. It. I have. The I mean, we can't record it, but we'll know how to search it. Right. <laughs> Let's go back real quick. One of the things you talked about was the amygdala being the fear center of the brain. And and I think that's sort of jumping way ahead of a lot of the, the, the background science of, right. of what that means and where that comes from, right. the development of that. Yeah. 
can you, and I find this stuff fascinating as well, but can you give us sort of a background, talk about the, the three, the three layers or the peels that kind of get towards the amygdala and how we've developed that and, and maybe even talk about conscious versus uh, subconscious responses Mm -hmm. of fear as well. Yeah. And so, well, like, so one thing is, I mean, like in terms of the triune brain model, if that's Mm -hmm. what you were, the three layers, um, as we evolved, we didn't recreate the brain every time we evolved. We just kind of stack new Legos on top of old Legos, right? So this, is, this presupposes that that evolution's real and we're not... Uh, let's go ahead and make <laughs> that leap, right? <laughs> just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Allegedly. Uh, Allegedly. <laughs> so. Our next guest, the Christianity group <laughs> of Anthropological Society of Is This Shit Real or Not? Right. <laughs> Get into the deep state. Okay. Um, so <laughs> we, uh, if we start going to frogs, I'm going to be really might have to walk out. But um, oh, okay. so you. that top layer of the brain, we kind of already mentioned a little bit, is like that cortical level of the brain. If we plop a brain down on the table, the wrinkly part, um, very fast. It's meaning making. It's the language is words. It's very much like why. I always think of this as the type A personality part of us. And it's a lot of the higher level functioning, um, like the prefrontal, the mid prefrontal cortex, just that middle part has nine different functions, including things like impulse control, fear diminishment, emotional regulation, the ability to have empathy and attune and connect to each other. Um, and below that, if you peel that section back, we have the limbic system of the brain or the mammalian level of the brain, which speaks the language of emotion, mm. right? And all mammals share that and have that in common. Um, and kind of funny because you can tell how we can have cross-species empathy. So we can watch Disney movies that have animals as characters or watch Zootopia and feel really right. sad, you know, and connect to that. And um, and we also see these mammals hold each other and cry. And, you know, when I was in anthropology, we'd all be sobbing in our classes watching these terrible videos when, like, an elephant would die and the whole mm. herd comes together and is, like, rocking and sobbing together. And you can see... Grieving. Grieving, right? right? There's these really... There's this emotional level that we connect to as other mammals. When you peel that back, underneath that is the lizard or reptilian brain, which is right above the autonomic nervous system, which is, like, autonomic nervous system being what controls your breath. You know, a lot of mindfulness or meditation, you hear who breathes you. Because right. if you were in charge of that, you'd be dead. Because you can't remember. <laughs> right. You can't remember the name of the Netflix show, let alone enough to breathe. Class Quick seven. aside, I had a panic attack one time <laughs> listening to something and I'm driving. Mm-hmm. Not a real panic. Well, semi-panicked. And I'm like, what happens if I forget? My, my, my brain just automatically forgets to breathe. Right. And I'm like thinking about it, like, no, well, it can't because that's just like. Your, your heart beats. You don't control that. Right. You breathe. You don't control right. that. And then like, yeah. Crazy. Yeah. No, it, it is. And so it's we're getting to this this lizard brain down here that, again, like, you know, kind of Brian brought up. Like, this is very automatic, unconscious, reflexive. I'm not consciously choosing to go here. You know, we have to remember my body is a living organism that's self-protective. Right. And will do things on my behalf uh-huh. without me being like, I decided, you know. It's sweating. <laughs> right. There's all these things that it's constantly doing. And when we get down to that reptilian brain, that's where fight, flight, and freeze is located. The freeze. Yeah. That's something that's new to me. Okay. Okay. Because yeah. I, I recently heard that in the context of a, uh, of a sexual assault case. Yes. And I'm like, wait a minute. I know, I've heard of flight, fight or flight. Right, which has been much more common in the language. And I think partially that's because we feel more comfortable with it. 
Okay. I just haven't heard freeze. I mean, it doesn't surprise me. Some people just get scared well, stiff. Of right? course. Adage, and you've seen, yeah. But I think it's the idea that that's not a conscious choice. Okay. My body does that because my body wants to preserve my life and minimize physical harm. Okay. And my body will go into these things in a fourth of a second. Okay. So if you, if you think about it from like an evolutionary standpoint, you know, let's say like the 4 billion year history of the world, right? The first organism that sort of like thrived, and I'm sure there were many iterations that didn't thrive, but the first organization organism that did has sort of the same Can like mechanism. Yeah. Like they're, they're trying to replicate themselves. They're fighting off uh, any kind of uh, aggressor, uh, either like, hiding themselves in their environment or fighting off any other uh, issue, right? And, and it's designed to self-preserve and go as long as possible. Right. And these things have been evolving through uh, organisms and, and animals, mammals, uh, from uh, the Neanderthals into the, the modern human brain, where we have these subconscious reactions to things that we don't even know that we have and they happen before you can even process a lot of times that the danger is actually happening. It's kind of like, uh, um, if you, if you're in New York, mm -hmm. uh, and, and you're like at a crosswalk, right. And tons of people hanging around, but you got your headphones on you're, and you're playing on your phone and there's a guy, you know, there's a homeless guy standing next to you and there's a bunch of, you know, kids running around and then there's a dude in a business suit, right. And the dude in the business suit is waiting for that uh, the light to change, walk across the street. You got your head down. As soon as that businessman moves, you move. Because you assume, based on the hierarchical uh, decision-making model, that he's got his shit together, and that's the, the proper person to follow, the path to follow. So you move, not looking around for danger or anything. Sometimes you just sort of trust the better judgment of the model and follow that, whereas you would not probably follow the kid into traffic. Or the you know. well, or like anybody, I mean, on I thirty five, who suddenly notices their foot comes off the gas, and then someone cuts them off. Like you just were automatically noticing that you were slowing down the car because you were sensing someone because of the pattern recognition your body has mm -hmm. for what it looks like when somebody is going to start ooping into your lane, where you're like, you just pull back. Yeah, shocker. Yeah. She said it better than I did, but yeah, pattern recognition. You right? say ooping, ooping, no, ooping. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a, a word? Technical traffic play, term. It's in the. We're with yeah. friends. I want to see. Department of Public yeah. Safety. This uh, is gonna come up when I was a child. They used to threaten to make a <coughs> witchinary because I would just like as a kid be like lobby flabber stopper and like make up words and explain like the definition oh, that's a, that's <laughs> like <funny>. I'm, <laughs> I'm like and but like very cool about it like no, clearly that's what that means well somebody created klingon right and dothraki <laughs> i mean so it's yep. maybe whitney could right i mean tokian like created like how many different languages oh, that's right, right? <laughs> just for funsies but it is that pattern recognition before you even know what you're doing right. you're doing this thing and it's right. almost always a self-preservation reaction right. in those movements <laughs> Right, but and I think sometimes because of our early experiences, this pattern recognition can lead us to do things that isn't always going to be helpful in the future. It helped us at one time to survive a certain environment, you know, and I think this gets into developmental trauma as well. We do things to survive childhood, and it's like, yay, you survived childhood, but a lot of us are walking around in, like, wounded kid parts that are still trying to survive as adults. Oh, well, okay. Do you elaborate on that a little bit? Of course, bit? of course. Um, so when I'm a child, uh -huh. my nervous system is not able to regulate itself. 
Okay. I can't soothe myself. I can't bring myself down when I'm very activated. So for instance, children, we kind of, I mentioned this earlier and I can go into more depth in it, but we have a gas pedal and Mm -hmm. a brake pedal, right? right? So kids are connected to their gas pedal. Right. (laughs) They're not connected to their brake pedal when they're born. And anybody who's been around kids can see that, right? Right. They get very activated and excited. And activation happens when we're happy, we're having sex, we're exercising, we're joyful. And it also happens when we're afraid. You assume I'm happy when I'm having sex. (laughs) (laughs) But we're not talking about kids having sex. No. No. To be clear. To be clear. Whitney went there. Whoa, Whitney did go there. She's like, kids with their gas pedals and having sex. Sex and... PG and, uh, yeah, I'm what sorry. The fuck? My bad. My bad. I, I'm just. I, I love when you mansplain what I'm saying to you. Oh, <laughs> I'll be here all afternoon. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, uh, but they are like I think of it as like the house is wired for the brake pedal, but it's not plugged in. Right. So kids learn how to access their own brake pedal through their caretaker. Okay. Their caretaker helps them. So when you see kids a lot, they're very connected to like, oh, there's a swing set, my friends are here, and there's cake, and, and they like just, they're so, right. you know, or what will happen is they're running around the playground, and then they bonk their head, and you'll usually notice the first thing they do is, and they'll look to their caretaker. Yeah, to see. Because their system's so full, and they don't know how to let this energy out. So they're looking to the caretaker, like, and then if the caretaker is just like, hey, sweetie, how are you doing? You bumped your head? You doing all right? And they're like, but if they freak out, but if the parent right. goes, oh my god, are you okay? You know, it's like then the kids are like, ah, then, yeah. right? They, yes, that's right. Yes, yes. yes. Uh-huh. And so, and what happens in that moment if I have a parent who's very activated, and I look at them and I'm trying to get release, then what I have to do as a child is leave myself, leave my experience, leave my needs, to try to regulate my caretaker, hmm. because I need them to be relaxed so that I can experience that. And if I'm chronically doing that, then we can kind of get into exquisite attunement where I'm not able to notice what I'm experiencing, but I'm very good at tuning into people around me okay, and trying to regulate them and make them feel better and notice what they need and want because my survival depends on that. This is all subconscious. Yes. Wow. Because we are a surviving mechanism, right? Right. So there's a really pivotal study called ACEs. Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. And this came about of looking at noticing these 10 different points that could be things like um, poverty, uh, lack of shelter, neglect, physical abuse, sexual abuse, all these things. And they started finding with insane accuracy, the more points you had on that list and didn't have a chance to process it, we're seeing real debilitating factors that could come up. Things like the likelihood that you're going to use intravenous drugs. Really? The likelihood that you will become involved in criminal activity. That you will die early. Wow. That you will have certain health conditions from these issues that we're seeing because it's affecting a nervous system that's trying to adapt to that environment. Because as a kid, my nervous system, if you're my caretaker, I need you to live. Right. So if I'm having a need that you don't recognize in me or can't provide for... Or because of your history, this isn't to me about blame, but because of your history, your trauma legacies that you experienced in your family, your nervous system, you know, capability, you can't recognize my need. I can't, as a child, say like, oh, you know, my parents been through some stuff, so they're not able to be here for me. 
because to open my little psyche to that is to be on par with like, I could die at any moment because my caretaker can't recognize my needs. So I have to make it my fault. I have to get rid of that need in me. So we really see things like self-hate as a survival mechanism. Interesting. Because I have to split off this part of me because I have to maintain this connection to my caretaker to live. Self-hate and, and, and how, does it, how would it manifest? Like, give me an example of right. how that would, that would manifest itself to... I guess to to accomplish what he or she subconsciously wants in their caretaker, i.e., parents. Right? Right. Can I, can I give an example and then you elaborate yeah, on please. what it might be? So, like a dysfunctional home, mom and dad fight all the time. The kid watches them fight, and the kid is front and center and is sort of part and parcel, but maybe not necessarily directly related to the kid's actions. But it causes financial distress, and the parents actively engage in the, that dysfunction in the home. Would that be a yeah, I mean, definitely. That could be an example. I mean, it can even be, I think, too, it, does, it can be really kind of like just general where it's like, I have this need for my parents to attend to me mm-hmm. and notice like I'm sad mm-hmm. and they don't. And so then I start telling myself I'm too needy. I just need to take care of other people and that will satisfy my needs because I'll be valuable because I take care of them. Huh. And so then you can often see how this can go into an entire lifetime of doing that. Of people that are just Taking care of other people. Generous. Yes. I mean, you can go into careers where you just help people. Right. You could become a counselor, right? Yes. I mean, this is like yes. the exquisite attunement. Like one of the counselors I was at a training was joking. He's like, you know, exquisite attunement. We're great at regulating other people. And it's somewhere deep down you were neglecting yourself. Correct. Or, you know, or there's some level of like, I didn't feel seen. And so how I adapted was I'll see everybody else. Oh. And that'll, that'll help me, you know, or it's like, I won't ever rely on anybody else. Interesting. Because I will never be made vulnerable again. So if I want to make, I don't have kids, but if I ever have kids and I want them to be selfless, <laughs> caring, altruistic people, you got to ignore them. Yeah. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Right, that, right, right, right. That's what I'm well, taking no, away. This, right. Yeah, this is totally, I love that this is the takeaway from this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, of course. But no, but, no that's, that, that is that's why I abandoned my children. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that is interesting though. Like womp, womp. how people. Yes. You know, I mean, how kids growing up, you know, and, and how they, they it's always take about in that. certain... They take in certain things. There was really, I love them. I mean, the Counselor Dream movie, Inside <clears throat> Out, that Pixar movie that was like a cartoon and all takes place in a little girl's head. Which one? It's Pixar's um, Inside Out. It was with joy and sadness. It's all inside a little girl's head. And so you see all of her emotions. So she has anger and fear and disgust and sadness and joy. Um, and so the whole premise of the movie... Well, girls generally have like 10 more emotions and... That's a sexist joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah look, look what you got yourself <laughs> right. into. Take it away. <laughs> Take it away. At least the Topo Chico is free. Um. Mansplaining <laughs> and sexist joke. Right. It's perfection. No, but I mean, I, I mean. I'm just going to sit here with my trauma. Without. <laughs> I, I think, w- would it be fair to say, and maybe it is a sexist statement, but I think women are more attuned to I think that's emotion. culturally and behaviorally trained. Okay. Okay. We all have the capacity to notice each other. Right. Um, I think girls are continuously told that their job is to do the emotional labor of the room. How about, would it have something to do, do you think, and, and, I, and you're the expert here, I'm, I'm, I'm just an idiot, but just thinking, um, uh, evolutionary, when, when 
obviously we started out as nomad hunter gatherers and the women for, 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 you know, for, for the most, uh, basic reasons were the caregivers of the children. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, it used to also be the job of just the responsibility of the whole village, like coming together. So not just individuals, but like, no, but was caring, raising, caring, raising, rearing. I mean, they had the child, right. Right. Um, now would it be, would there be obviously a utility for women being more attuned to the community when men are out, you know, back in this like, well, I think social engagement really drives us a lot, right? Like to be in tribe, we have like, we are, I mean, I think this is what's really hard too, is we kind of, it's uncomfortable to be in connection, right? right? I mean, like vulnerability makes a really great meme. It really sucks to do it. It doesn't feel great. You know, I mean, like I always tease, I usually know I'm about to be vulnerable with somebody when I want to like vomit or cry or boast. Like it's like, it's very scary because you're like, oh, I'm opening to the real possibility I could be rejected. And what that raises is that childhood fear that you'll leave. Because as a child, if you abandon me, I'll die. Right. 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 But it's like having to have that adult consciousness that can trust that I am capable of caring for myself. So if someone left me, would it suck? Would I be sad? You know, would I maybe experience grief like if a relationship broke up? Yeah, but like I would live. But like child consciousness isn't aware of that. Right. And so I think, you know, it's these like ego states that we can sometimes get caught in. And I mean, I think you see that too, working with like dysfunctional relationships, codependent, abusive relationships. Sometimes you see people like screaming, like, if you leave me, I'll die. Like, I can't survive without you. I need you, you know. And sometimes I think it's gross how we romanticize it. I think nothing's creepier than Jerry Maguire saying, you complete me. Yep. It's like, can we just both be whole people? <laughs> like, I, like, I don't, you know, it's like, we're not missing aspects of ourselves, right? right? But I think we've really romanticized that idea that like, you know, it's Brangelina. We like merge people instead of being able to recognize each other's autonomy and that being a beautiful thing um, and realizing, you know, how we support and can become interdependent, which also means like, I allow everyone to have boundaries, you know, um, and just, and how that it looks. But again, this really can feel dysregulating boundaries mm. and direct communication feel really dysregulating to a lot of people because we're not used to doing it in this culture. Um, and so people personalize it. And, and when you say this culture, you mean American? Yeah. Culture? Okay. Yeah. Which is my reference point because I was raised here. So right. Like, right. I don't want to speak about like places that I haven't, you know, but I definitely think there's a tendency in our communication to be like, really offended if I tell you no. Huh. As, as, as a female. Or, I think both ways. I think I've heard. Or as a male. From, I've, anyway, okay. I think just e- within families, within friendships, you know, oftentimes when we're saying like, no, I'm not available for that. It's like, <laughs> Oh, I see. Right. Or there's not even checking in. It's like, here, um, I'm going to come and start asking you to do emotional labor, but not ask you. I'm just going to come into a room and start dumping on you about everything I'm going through. And I need you to witness me and walk me through this. And like, you didn't say, hey, do you have the bandwidth if I share some stuff with you? (laughs) Like getting, getting emotional consent. Right. Like we really don't offer people agency, you know, or we tend to make people take emotional responsibility. You made me feel this way. And it's like, hold on, like, let's like, let's back up here. You know, like, how do I take agency for what's going on in the situation? For lack of a better word, maybe a stereotype does exist in our culture to where we do put that paradigm on certainly, for instance, mothers are put in very difficult positions when they're raising young children. Right. Uh, dads are supposed to be the, the stern disciplinarian, 
uh, and and we we make these these roles for people that don't actually have to exist. They can be inner uh, intertwined. It's not a, a, a basis of sex, nor is it a capacity for either sex no. to to engage in in only specific type of emotions. My question is: Is that do you believe in your experience and education and training and everything? Uh, do you think there is a not so much a anatomical phys- physiological difference, but a how do, how do I frame this? A real difference, though, between something inherent difference between men and women, and in, in regardless of age, upbringing, culture, whatever, and how they, their brains are wired. Wired, correct. Gotcha. So. I really, I mean, I think the majority of what we see uh-huh. is due to cultural influences, okay. trained behavior. So n- nature uh, v. N- nurture v. Nature. Kind of. Right, right. And so, like, I mean, I really, I think that we have just, there's been such a long, like, historical, um, I know Tony Porter um, did a TED Talk called The Man Box, and he talks about being raised as a male in this culture. And he said, you know, I realized I had a daughter and a son, and when my daughter would start crying, I'd hold her in my lap, and I'd be like, hey, baby girl, what's going on? Talk to me. And I let her like cry it out and talk it out. And he said, when my son would get upset when he was a little toddler and he'd start crying, I put him on my lap and I'd look at my watch because I was like, okay, suck it up, ma'am. Right, 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 right. Let's get it together. Yeah. And then he realized, why am I passing this on? Right. Like, what am I doing? You know, why am I shaming my son for, and, but like holding my daughter and not letting him have the same connection, um, and ability to just express emotion. Um, and I also, I think it's always important to, you know, my, from my anthropology days, there's more diversity within a group than between groups. What does that mean? So there are more different kind of varieties within a group, women okay, and men, than uh-huh. there are differences between women and men. Oh, okay. So that's always important to remember because I think when we do these broad strokes of either race or socioeconomic status or religion or anything like that, there's more diversity within those groups than there are between the groups separating them. And that's a an anthropological theory. Yes. Okay. And so um, the, the one thing that I will say to kind of, I think the point that you're getting at is that... I don't think I had a point. I was just curious. I'm, I'm giving you the benefit of the well, doubt. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you assume right. as much of me that I'm making a point. But. Yeah, right, right. So um, we talked about the HPX, uh, HPA axis that gets triggered by the amygdala, the fear center of our brain, um, It, which again is the fear I like, I like how you're using triggered in a scientific Oh, right, educational. Right. It's, it's used a lot. So, you know, <laughs> right, I, was I think say. I like, I mean, a lot of times I like the word activated when activated. we're talking about things that are like causing a response in me. Right. Like a stimulant. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So when the amygdala senses danger, uh-huh. it goes to the HP axis to release a flood of hormones for 96 hours. That 96 hours restarts every time I have to talk about it or I get activated or triggered. So again, I mean, we used to talk about this. I think this is interesting because 96 hours is how much time I have to do a non-report exam. <laughs> and it's really hard to drive on a flooded road. Like, if right. I'm flooded with hormones, right. it's really hard for me to, like, sit and be like, let me make a really conscientious decision about the future process that could take an average of two years for me to get through. Wow. And, like, how is this going to affect me? Um, is this a mutual person that's in my community? Because I've had a lot of people who, once they come out about a, a moment of assault, you know, then it's like they lose everybody. 
if this was a family member, you lose everybody, you know? Wow. And so again, and we talked about that social engagement being a threat. Uh-huh. So I've just gone through this assault, which was really life threatening. Yeah. Right. And now I'm faced with like, if I say anything, will I lose my tribe? Right. Right. Which again, and evolutionarily, that's, that's death. Right. If you get kicked out, if you get outcasted, you die. You die. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. so, sometimes Stand I think, for yourself. Right. And so, I mean, I see this when I think of like, um, adolescents who commit suicide after being like outcasted in high school. Oh yeah. You know, you really see yeah. because it's like, that's it. That's it. In, in your mind, life's over. Right. There's no, you don't see the, the, the future prospects of, of all these great potential things what that could happen. Yeah. Right. And so the series of hormones, which I think of as like the little kind of troops that come out yeah. from the HPA axis to protect us for that period of time. You mentioned like adrenaline and cortisol, which, um, both kind of gives me energy. So I'm like ready to go. Um, but it also dulls my connection to my emotion. So I have emotions firing, but I'm not feeling them because again, if I'm in threat, I don't really care how I feel about this right now. Right. You just just want to get get through it. Right. Right. You want to be away from it. Right. Right. And so sometimes again, remember this can get set off. And when you're in a really intense, when you guys are in the courtroom, right. Uh There's a lot of adrenaline there. Oh yeah. Right. And that can feel good because you feel like, you have a lot of energy and you're like you're going on, yeah. and you're on and you're in it. You're in the flow and you're not thinking like, you know, right. <laughs> you're not connected with the Everything's emotions. by the wayside. People, yes. the People, jury, everything. everything goes by the wayside. You're in your lane. You're in your right? lane. Yeah. Um, and then you're also going to have like opioids that can come up. We have painkillers. Natural. Natural opioids. And so, but again, if you've ever been around somebody on a lot of painkillers, you know, you can get really blunted in your affect. Yes. Right. So, like, when people have a lot of that in their you system, mean their countenance. Yes. 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 Right. S A T word of the day. <laughs> so I'm very proud of you. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, and so people can be like, um, I think that's when they pulled the knife out. That was when the third guy came in. Yeah. You know, it's like that is so interesting because I just had a trial and I, I just got done with trial and one of my well, my client took the stand. I'm not going to divulge any more information, but I mean, apart from generalizations, but she took the stand, he took, he, she took the stand and was very flat, flat or different. I mean, she just seemed different to the point where the prosecution thought she was intoxicated. Right. And the jury kind of saw a difference between Uh how my client acted with regards to communicate with us. As opposed to how when she took the stand. Right. right. She's sitting there in the courtroom at council table for days on end and interacting with people, having conversations, acting naturally. But when you get on the stand and all eyes are on you and the spotlight's on and all and the pressure really there. invasive questions. And, and, and it's about your life. Yeah. And yeah. it's about it's not just necessarily like, OK, well, the consequences aren't going to really affect me. I'm like most witnesses. I mean, I'm, I'm here and I'm, I'm this is nerve wracking and. And geez, I'm getting you know stressful, but ultimately, I know what I say isn't going to directly affect me, right? As opposed to this person, if you're a witness yeah. in your own case, yeah. and you're testifying, and this, this is, is your life, this is and my this life. is your one shot. That's really interesting. So yeah, so you can see people, and then again, it's like this, and then you're in this fishbowl in those you know moments of like the suspicion. They're not emotional. They're too emotional. Right. right. Like, you know, it's like, there's no, sorry, there's no winning. You get six or, or in this case, it was a misdemeanor. So six jurors or 12 and felonies experts now, right? All of a sudden right. they, they're human lie detectors right. that say, hmm. 
That looks really That looks right. That's right. not right. Right. And you were protectively trying to close yourself off. Right. Or control. Control. I mean, or, there's so much fear because we know we stigmatize emoting in our culture. Like when I'm in a counseling office with folks, like the first time, if ever, they start to cry, it's immediate. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I hate this. I hate this. You know, and it's just, I feel so weak, you know, um, even though. You know, I try to explain tears are the number one way we release excess activation from our nervous system. Because when you're in threat, you punch your gas pedal to raise this energy to either fight or flee. Mm -hmm. But if I didn't get to do either of those things, then I have all of this energy. It can't just dissipate. Right. It, it has to go somewhere. Right? Yeah, that's like Newton's law, right? Like energy is not. Can't be created or destroyed. Look at the essay. Brian's like. <laughs> Pulling at the hard backs today. So you know, his job. And you talk about, you know, like sort of self-compassion, I guess, right. sort of tangentially you talked right. about this. And and like a, you know, a, a car, you got to take care of it. And yeah. uh, for my car, my car takes ethanol. I don't know about yours. <laughs> so that's one way you can do it. But there are other ways, obviously. Biodiesel. People, people do a very bad job of figuring out how to let that energy go. Right. Yeah. Because what are they told about it? I mean, and two... You know, I do want to, you know, a little bit in terms of I know I try not to do too much gender, but like there is that level of like, oh, are you just another hysterical woman? Right. You know, unfortunately, yeah, I think that's dismissed. I mean, it's just like it's kind of in the same way within like the medicalization of the female body and how that's handled oftentimes. Like your symptoms are not taken as seriously. More women die in the ER because it's like you're, you know, you're being a hypochondriac, like you're making up symptoms, you're exaggerating symptoms, you know, like how people are talked to, you know, and that experience of like, I have to convince you, you know, and I talk to clients who are having to talk to law enforcement and like, you are my gateway in. That's, that's it. That's, that's interesting. You, you mentioned that because I'm just, I'm just drawing the comparison from my own experiences. And I just know like, for instance, my girlfriend and I, when we get sick, I'm the biggest baby and she's a lot tougher than I am. And it's so weird that like, I mean, but if she went to the doctor's office and let's say she was really sick and started saying all these things, They'd be like, okay, well, they, they'd automatically probably presuppose that I'm like, oh, I mean, you're right. You're obviously really sick. You're the right. you're saying it, and you're a right. guy, so you, and you're right. Right, and the idea of needing to control it, needing controllable systems, huh. and that feels very like out of control. But that's a whole different tangent. Man, hold on, man, cold is a real thing. There's <laughs> a really good video. Have you seen this? You know what I'm talking about? The guys from Shaun of the Dead. Uh, did a great episode of Man Cold, and the dude is just on the couch. He's just so bad off, and he ends up calling nine one one or whatever the British version of it is nine 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 like that. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. So they is come nine nine or seven, seven, and the his seven, wife seven, seven, is so incredibly dismissive of him. And it's, as he's saying, the, the EMS comes in. They're like, "Lady, get this man his binky." Like what? <laughs> <laughs> there, there, you poor soul. You're going to be okay. You know, he's just, I mean, he's, it looks right. like he's dying, but he's just got a sniffle. Yeah. It is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Oh, like, like, seriously, Sarah went, my gr- girlfriend Sarah went to work today. Mm-hmm. Like, how are you going to work? Like, she's like, I got to. Um, like, I mean, right. like, you're in no state to be going to work, but she did. Right. I mean, and she's just tougher than I, 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 I would call Brian. I'm like, sorry, man. I mean, drop whatever I'm. But I think that also goes into like what we talked about in terms of survival mechanisms and our identity and like what we're taught we're supposed to do and what's allowed and what's not allowed, you know, and that's like, those are things that are very hard to move away from. 
because it's, you know, I mean, that often happens, I think, within couples, within families. It's like, if I don't do these things, why would someone stay? Okay. You know, the culture we so live in. So the implication in, that, I guess, that you Working just hard, that, like, working being, hard. like con- continuing to do, to be active. I mean, I think that's the hardest thing for us in this culture is to slow down and just be. I mean, you know, it's like when people are like, well, this is happening. I mean, like, I've just have people literally come to my office and just say, like, I need you to fix me. Which presupposes that they think they're broken. Right. You know, and that these things that are coming up for them mean that there's something faulty with them. I could use some fixing. I mean. But this is what our culture teaches us. We are taught, you know, we live in capitalism. We live in patriarchy. We live in a lot of these systems that teach us to objectify ourselves and each other and relationship at large. Okay. You mentioned the patriarchy. I'm... And this is fascinating to me because I'm so not really, I, or I'm, I'm learning about, and Brian could tell you this, uh, about a new, this new culture of, of or not culture, but certain awareness of certain things that I'm really, and frankly, I'm just, I just didn't know about. Like, for instance, triggered. I learned what trigger was the other day. Uh, I've, obviously, I'm not an idiot. I mean, like I could kind of catch the reference, right? Jason has awoken to woke culture. I, I've awoken still... to the woke, quote unquote, woke culture, and I'm fascinated by it. I, I really am because I mean, I'm not. I don't consider myself a millennial, although maybe technically I am. I was born in '82, okay. Um, but maybe I, I think by virtue of where I was raised, I'm from the Rio Grande Valley. I think we're a little behind, so that's. What, <laughs> but uh. Didn't have the internet in high school. I had the internet. Did you? I had dial-up in dial senior up. year. I had, well, yeah, I had dial-up. I had dial-up. I mean, yeah, I'm barely. Really, I gotta admit, I'm really glad I didn't yeah. have access to any of that. Oh, no, me too. Me too. I'm glad there was no YouTube. I'm glad there was no cell phone. Like, I mean, yeah. my I think my life, my childhood would have been horrible. I don't know how these kids do it. But, sorry, uh, getting back to the point that I kind of, what I was trying to make is that, so all these things, I'm just, I was just... You know, I, I asked a, a friend before. I'm like, "What is a what is a microaggression?" Like, I've never heard that. I, I, I just thought it was being like maybe a little passive aggressive, like, or you're just being a bit of a dick, but not like a massive asshole. I'm like, no, no, it has a racial component or a power mm-hmm. component to yeah. it. I had no clue. Yeah. So all these things, I'm just kind of like, it's, so it's interesting. And so that when you say the patriarchy, what is that? I mean, obviously, patriarch meaning father figure. Hierarchical, hierarchical, oppressive. From a male right. dominant. But I right? think, but I mean, I think men suffer from it just as much as women. You know, there's like these different levels of this that I think that, you know, it is. It's hard for everybody who's raised in it. Everyone's like suffered because of that, that hierarchical system that's very oppressive, that says there's one way, there's this way to be, um, that people who are not in the in group definitely are subjugated to like not getting the same privileges. So is that the patriarchy as you know it, or is that more of a. Is there like a, that would be a, a sociolo- definition? I don't oh, know. Oh, okay. Like, yeah, right, right. So that, no, but I don't know because there's some sociological, very strict scientific, absolutely. Like that, triggered is more of a psychological, in the psychological usage of it, and right. it means a certain thing, right? Right. There, and, it's and, like again, this is kind of like we talked about earlier with like criminal justice when we talk about sexual assault versus when I talk to a client about their experience of sexual assault, right? right. Yeah, There's words can have a criminal meaning, meaning. They can have a global meaning. Global they meaning. can have a, a medical academic meaning. meaning. Like for research, like what, what do we mean academically when we're talking about these things? What's my personal meaning of that? Right. Um, or my favorite, the PC meaning, right? PC what, meaning. What's going to be on right. social networking? And but I think, yeah, I think that's what's helpful is like you, you did. Like if you say like, are you available? Can I ask you some questions about this to like friends to like hear about? Like what was your experience? 
Because I think a lot of times it's just like sitting down and having conversations. Like I remember when I was in one of my friends from undergraduate, um, we were just sitting having coffee with my partner and her and I just somehow got in a conversation of like all the sexual harassment moments we experienced from professors and like friends had experienced when we went to undergraduate. And he just was sitting there jaw dropped. Wow. And he was just like, I'm so sorry. Like I had no idea. And we just were like, like, didn't even uh, think of it. Didn't because, even. Right. And it was like, because that had just been like, oh, yeah. So common. Or it's, so, yeah. So common, you know, like you can calling on the street and like experiences that you go through and just wow. like that people feel entitled that that's their right. Wow. To like objectify you and say things to you, um, bosses, you know, and, and again, those situations where it's like, and what do I do about that? Right. Yeah. You know, I think it's like the, like we talk about the medicalization of the female body. I mean, like since the turn of the century, you know, you kind of see like women didn't want to go to the hospital for pregnancy because they would die. You know, that was really scary. You know, they didn't have germ theory. So they would use the same things without cleaning them. Nobody Um, would wash their hands. They weren't washing their hands. They were aggravated as hell by childbirth because it wasn't on a time clock. So they would do forceps where they would just pull the baby out. Oh my goodness. So there was like horrific things going on. So it was terrifying to go. Yeah. But I think it's realizing... These things still happen. Like, I can't tell you how many women I have on a regular basis who go through really medically traumatic things where, like, even though they had a birth plan and a doula in the room, you know, you have doctors who were, like, doing things that they're not giving them permission for. As, But in the course of their medical... They're saying procedure or they're saying they're saying like, I'm doing this because I'm not allowing you to have your birth this way. So I'm going to go ahead and do this. I'm going to give you Pitocin. I'm going to like break your water. I'm going to like do these things, even though you said you don't want to do that now because I'm saying that again. And some of this comes from there's there's a double bind here. There's people like we're really sue happy. So then doctors want to control the whole process because they feel like they know better. Right. Um, Well, I don't want to and I don't want to categorize all doctors. There's a lot. There's some very great doctors and people who do. Sure. work. Sure. But. But there's these instances where it's like, I want to control this whole process. And, and that's really hard. You know, it's a very scary, vulnerable situation to be in where I can't like walk out when I'm in labor. Right. And, you know, and be like, I'm going to go now. I guess to a lesser extent, I mean, you have, you have clients that want to kind of dominate or control to the extent that they can. But a lot, agency some and do. choice, right? Agency right. and choice. Agency and choice, exactly. And just being able to be a part of this thing where we're having a discussion, you know. And I think sometimes when it's like, I don't need to explain this to you, and I know what's best for you, and I'm telling you that right. to me is kind of that patriarchal. Like I'm telling you what's going to happen now. But sometimes that's not necessarily a bad thing, though, right? Like, in, <laughs> like what would be a situation? I'm okay. Right, right. And I and and I mentioned the situation where you have a defendant, a criminal defendant, client slash client, and a defense attorney okay and they're let's say you're in in the middle of trial okay and they're nagging at you they're like hey uh say this look ask this right to the witness right and they're assuming that what they think whether it's right or wrong i don't know but i mean what they're assuming in their minds what they're seeing is important and germane to Mm -hmm. you know to to what the point is or what the the goal is that you want to attain by Asking this witness questions, right? Right. So, as Brian and I could tell you. Right. There's times when that's not appropriate. Not at all. Not even appropriate. Not even helpful. Right. 99% of the time it's right. not appropriate or helpful. Harmful. Right, right. Almost right. harmful. If you want, you want me to ask her or him that. Yeah. Yeah. Not only is it not admissible, right. it will be objected to. 
this jury's going to look at us like we're assholes and you're going to lose this case. Right. And so, again, I think, there, of course, you guys, and this is your job, you know, into your arena, so you'd know more about that than me, than in situations where I'm going to have to say, like, hey, I'm not going to be able to do that right now. There's things that, I, again, that you have agency that you can say, like, I can't agree to that, and you've hired me. And so there's a certain level of trust you have here with, like, my expertise. We can have a talk about that later. Um, but there's a lot of reasons that that's not going to work for us right now. Right. And in, in the thick of the moment, I can't have that conversation. Like, we can dialogue about this later. Yeah. Like so usually offline. what right. I like to say is like, oh, okay, uh, go ahead and write it down and give it to me. Right. Or or if right. I'm trying, like if I'm of the course. second chair right? and let's say Brian's the first chair, yeah. then it's my that duty. That, that's right. There's a collaboration happening here where like they're hiring you to a certain extent for that expertise. And again, this person isn't currently in a situation that's like life-threatening or vulnerable. Well, although the, the, the conceptually, conceptually, right. The, the juxtaposition of the birth, childbirth might right. actually be that sort of way I, I and i think there is sort of a, a there's a very huge difference with for instance a childbirth or a med- medical procedure, procedure that's very Active. personal personal yeah. it's it's physical it's yes. on your body. body so i'm like uh, literally having to invade your your body right. yeah, like your personal whereas way. whereas a criminal trial well i would argue is very exceptionally personal, personal yes, and invasive very, very, just it's, it's a different way of, of 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 being that way and communication is always one of the it's the foundation of uh any kind of practice of law, you have to be able to communicate your ideas. You have to right. be able to communicate with the client. You, you, you have a melding of the minds and agreement, right. hopefully, uh, just as much as any kind of consent is. I think of that's the, the root of the idea. Right, right. The, and the idea of bringing that in more. Yeah, and one of the biggest complaints lawyers get is communicate, lack of communication. In fact, that, I think that was like the largest uh, issue of complaints to the state bar was lack of communication, communication. with clients. Uh, and, and of course, our clients, uh, you know, I think we have great communication with our clients, or at least we try to, right? right? Mm-hmm. right. And it's always a process, and you always find the opportunity. Sometimes it's not in the heat of the moment when they of want course, you to do something. Right. You have to wait for the break and be like, here, look, this is why I didn't do that. Right. You know, th- you got to, there's things, decisions I get, I have to make, and there's decisions you have to make, and these are decisions I have to make, and here's why. Yeah. But, uh, I think that's the same kind of conversation you that doctor could have had with that person, had. and they they just chose not to not to because they're presumed to know better to know better. And of course, they're I'm sure part ego, part uh, protection of their own practice and fiduciaries, right, right. It, all, all interplays in that. And, and consent is, uh, you know, it's it's a it's an evolving definition. If you want to talk about definitions evolving, consent is is absolutely one. Right. And when we talk about sexual assault. That has a very specific meaning in Texas okay. and a lot of other states, right? And one of the elements of sexual assault is consent. Uh, expressed, implied, uh, is not in the definition. But what is, is by the use of physical force or threats, compelled another to participate, right? right? So so you have specific definitions of, and I, I seriously doubt most people in the social realm would have said, oh, consent means, or right. lack of consent means. Right, otherwise we wouldn't have to keep going over it. Oh, man, I mean... It, and, and so the public has this preconceived knowledge of what that word means. So they apply it as the word they know. Mm-hmm. And or, then say, and, yeah. The, and the difficulty of like, can consent be revoked? Right. Like, or, or like, what am I, where, where am I consenting to? Do you know right. what I mean? That I might like, or you, if you're implicitly consenting and when does that Im- implication stop? Right. Right. You know what I mean? Like, how are we conversing and checking in? And like, again, I think this, you know, there's a lot of elements to that as well, just around um, 
sexualized things in general being sex centric and sex phobic in our culture. So like everything's about sexuality, but we should feel really ashamed about it. And so then like, because of that, we're not sex positive and it's really hard to talk about it and have honest conversations about that. And there's a lot of inaccurate assumptions made about sexuality and what sex is and how people participate and what are signs that you were wanting to be sexual and um, that's, it's problematic. It's problematic in the conversation for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I find it fascinating. Uh, you know, I wanted to talk before we kind of get back into the oh, sexual assault because right. that's certainly one of the areas that you right. have dealt a lot with. Uh, but I thought one of the things you were you were talking about when you talk about counterintuitive responses to right. trauma, um, I see now having been on the defensive side for some time, I see a lot of counterintuitive responses from our clients. Mm. Um, and let me give you an example. So uh, at a at a a crime scene, an alleged crime, uh, is uh, is being investigated by the police, and they talk to the witnesses on the scene, including the person that is making the complaint, which we would call a complaining witness, mm-hmm. uh, or uh, might call them a victim, although victim presupposes that it actually occurred, right? right, right. So we, in our words, we use complaining witness, right? right? Uh, and and. When the police officers investigate and start talking to these witnesses, they talk to them differently. Mm-hmm. Like they, they ask them questions in a way. Uh, oftentimes you'll read it in a report that, that says, I normalized their experience. I validated. Uh, I validated their experience. Um, and this is, these are in, supposed to be investigators to determine whether something occurred, though they are starting off under what I guess in the pop culture world is the we believe movement or the Mm -hmm. me too movement, but it's really the we believe part of that. Right. When law enforcement ought to be the, we investigate part of that. Mm -hmm. And I'll get to my point, but hang tight with me here. So what I'm suggesting is that the way in which they ask these questions, the way they try to normalize and validate the, the information that they're receiving from one party, then they sort of just flip towards the person that's being accused of the crime and the way that they treat them, right? They put them in an isolated room. Uh, they, they, they are taught a technique called the read technique, which is essentially broken down into uh, trying to befriend or create a rapport, uh, rapport with the individual, uh, sort of like loosening them up mm-hmm. and then giving them outs as to why the illegal conduct is at least somewhat rational. And then it goes to an outright accusation mode and individuals end up in many cases shocking or not to you end up falsely confessing to things that they actually didn't do it may not be the the crime but it'll be uh, certain parts of the crime or elements of the crime for instance in a sexual assault the consent portion right well i mean you knew she didn't want this right like you had to have known but they don't start there they go well i mean what was going on Oh, oh, so you did that? I mean, that's that's kind of, all the guys do that, right? Like, that's no big deal. You know, you guys are drinking, that's no big deal. Nobody can fault you for that, right? Okay, and how much did you have to drink? Did you buy her some more drinks? Of course you did. I mean, I would have. Like, why didn't you? you yeah. Uh, and then she they loosened so, up, was she? Yeah. Loosened up. Uh, and, the, and then you took her home. And the guy says, yeah, but I mean, she never said no. I, I thought she was into it. Sort of going along the alcohol facilitated sexual right. assault. Typical very construct. Common. It's very common. Yeah. Uh, I thought she wanted to go home with me. Well, did you ask her for consent? I said, well, no. I mean, she was kissing me. I mean, that's not the, oh, but you didn't ask her, right? Okay. Okay. And then what happened? Well, we went in my bedroom. Uh, she took her clothes off. Okay. Well, how intoxicated was she? 
Uh, I mean, I'm probably pretty intoxicated. How intoxicated were you? Oh, really intoxicated. Uh, okay, so you knew she was intoxicated. You didn't ask her for consent. Okay. And you raped her, didn't you? Like, no, 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 we had sex. And then it's an interpretation after that. Like, uh, for purposes of sexual assault in Texas, you knew that the person was unconscious or unable to consent. That would be the lack of consent element in a sexual assault. That the actor knew the person was unconscious or unable to consent. That, in large part, is the alcohol-facilitated sexual assault paradigm and elements. Uh, And we have, um, and I I wanted to talk about uh, sort of the counterintuitive responses that you get from people who are accused of these crimes because you have them basically sitting there in an interview room being accused Mm -hmm. of conduct Mm -hmm. and they elevate the accusations. They go from buddy, buddy to let me give you a reason why it's okay because we all would do that and then downright to you're you're a predator and you you sought these people Mm -hmm. out versus the individual that makes the claim Mm -hmm. who is immediately normalized uh you know they they are uh and there are traumatic things that happen after the fact right and i don't think it's i don't think every initial patrol outing person is like the we believe either you know so i think you're getting variety on like i know but i mean i know the the modern uh, approach is is getting more towards that because they they receive a lot of training in this right and as a reaction to as a reaction to a lot of the public outcry, for sure. Right. The the modern, more modern patrol and investigators are are using these. Uh, I don't really think they're, they're investigative techniques per se. I think they're a lack of investigation. Uh, nonetheless, it's, well, in the it, process too, from the initial report to the actual investigation, which is different. Like the you know the patrol squad car that goes out there and is just taking the initial report versus when they meet with somebody from CID. To then like have that because that's often then that when stories differ that's immediately picked apart, you know, and that and I know that too. Some of the police when they then get uh, the complainant in the the room, um, they also go into interrogative tactics if they feel like there's anything that's like flagging that this doesn't seem right. Yeah, let me let me finish my oh, thought. Yeah. I definitely think you're on the right path. Uh, we're on the right discussion path of uh, we're on the same page of what we're talking about. But what the point I was going to drive home here is that uh, you know when when it is presented in front of a jury, the first responders will say, oh, well, the, the complaining witness was demure, quiet. Um, you know, she, at first she was confused, but that's normal in these cases, as, as is often with many of these people. It's very, very normal, right? Uh, you know, she, she, she did have a conflict in, in her statement, but she corrected it later, and that, that's very normal, again, of course, because trauma is a is a delayed response. And all of these things, I mean, they're, they're not necessarily wrong. Right. But the problem is that when you get to the investigator who interviewed the accused, right. who doesn't have his story uh, go chronological, who is uh, as described as passive-aggressive or aggressive and in denial, uh, you know, it, it's a there's a cognitive bias towards the way they describe their conduct. When in reality, I think all all facts being uh, unique to each certain certain case, if we use the hypothetical that I just gave you with an alcohol facilitated sexual encounter, um, and it's just the facts as I gave them in that hypothetical, nothing else, right? Uh, there there is a blurred line in that hypothetical, and. And there is already a, uh, a pointed finger towards one individual who is uh, 
for all intents and purposes, uh, having their uh, responses being categorized uh, as criminal and another being categorized as a victim. Where, and I think it is so easy uh, to get an expert to uh, crack down both of those responses and justify them in the opposite way. You could just as easily say (laughs) that the complaining witness, she didn't have her story straight because it's a lie. And here's this guy being accused of this crime. He's acting like that because, I mean, here's this detective with the spotlight on him telling telling him he did that. I mean, that that is not an indication of guilt. But they try to, uh, advocates, lawyers try to rationalize that as the cognitive bias for why that person is charged and why they should go to prison. Uh, It's interesting to me. I've seen a lot of counterintuitive responses be interpreted on both sides for the people, the complainants or the victims and for the accused. That is interesting. I think that's really interesting. Right. No, I agree. I mean, but this is also why I think like, I don't think we can adequately try these cases for that reason. Yeah. Because I mean, like, let's talk more about that because I think it's like, well, so what would the solution to that be? I, well, I don't know that I have one. I mean, that, you know what I mean? That's and not in like a, you know, but just kind of a really like it's so, okay, if we had, because it seems like either interrogation technique for you then isn't really adequate. Well, I think it should, no. it should come with a, <clears throat> it, it should start at a point where it's really more about investigating the facts of what happened. Right. right. Instead of saying, okay, I'm going to pick right away when I get called to the scene make a stab judgment. I think he did it and, and start going that way with that in mind. Right. So like said from a point of confirmation bias, let's say clean slate. Let's get, let's be objective. Let's see what happened. Okay. She's saying this. Yes. He's saying that, Okay. you know, I'm taking down facts. I'm treating them the same. I'm not, right. you know, being more consoling and conciliatory to- towards her or him, mm-hmm. whoever they deem the victim or, right. And I'm, I'm going to be less aggressive or, or deceptive or whatever towards this other person. Okay. I think at least that from the get go should be right. I mean, I mean, I know know, pragmatically and and practically it's not always going to be that way because if they're saying a crime has occurred and they got to make a determination with what they could gather in a short amount of time. Well, I get that, but it should at least try to have that. I think that unbiased, factual, investigative uh, mindset right away. I think that would help. Right. I think it's really hard. You know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very murky situation. And I think it's the same thing as like this idea of like, I'm going to be this kind of cold, objective tool, you know, I think, you know, and really it's like at the same time, like how am I staying present to this being a very human issue? And so, like, the balance there of, like, being able to be present and not just, like, stone-faced, just the facts, ma'am. Like, uh, that guy from Dragnet? What's his name? <laughs> that's an old... I mean, right, I, right. I mean, I, that's way before my time. I just remember watching <laughs> Nick at Night and... But, right, I mean, just That facts, guy. Right? I always, yeah, yeah, just the facts, Just the facts, ma'am. Just yeah. the facts, you know? And, like, how that comes across and um, trying to, you know, I mean, it, this is the difference of, like, the medical field trying to have good bedside manner instead of just being very, like cold objective you know um because this isn't objective 
I think it's hard, you know, it's like, because you're going to hear, and this is for anything, like perspectives are different, experiences are different, how we're internalizing information is different. And so um, I think it is really hard when we're like, but we just need to get the objective truth, you know, and that is, and I think in these situations where it's like, that's really tough. I mean, and especially when people don't remember things, when they don't remember, or like, I don't know what reality they exist in. Explain what you mean by that. So, like, I just always think of, like, um, when I was in the master's degree program, you know, and, like, talking to some people who worked with um, pedophiles. This is a very extreme example, of course. um, Where part of that therapeutic process is having to do a lot of reality breaking. Of, like, people being like, no, like, I loved them. Like, that was a loving relationship. But, okay, when you, like, what they're... Uh, I'm the dynamic is an the, adult and a child. Adult and a child, how a pedophile would view their... Bit. Yeah, that that was like, we loved each other. Okay. And having to be like, no, that person didn't want to do that with you. And they're like, I don't... But we like loved... That was like, I really loved them. I cared about them. I would never do anything to hurt them. Mm. You know, and so I think it was... Um, oh, I'm blanking on his name. The undetected rapist, Lisak. L-I-S-A-K who was on college campuses and wanted to do uh, kind of a survey. Um, and he buried it in a human sexuality thing because he knew he couldn't say, like, how much rape is happening on my campus because nobody would grant oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, David, heard of that. David Lisak. And so he would just, like, bury in this human sexuality question because you know how, like, all those classes you'll get extra credit points if you go and help right. out the psychology department and take a couple of quizzes. And so he would bury in the question, have you ever, like, forcibly held someone down against their will and had sex with them? Right. So he wouldn't use the word rape. He would just put that languaging in it. You know, a lot of people say yes. And then he had put, like, would you like to be paid for a follow-up kind of interview or study? And so some of those people said, yeah. And so he would interview them and was shocked by some of the answers that were given there, you know, where they would be like, well, yeah, you know, it's like freshman week, you'd have a mark. And he's like, you call them marks. And he's like, yeah, we call them marks. And you, like, pick somebody and you invited them to this, like, big, like, fraternity party that we'd have. Right. Um, and then once your mark arrived you would start get, feeding them drinks. And he's like, well, would there be alcohol in the punch? And he's like, well, yeah. And he's like, would the girls that you brought there know that? And he's like, well, I mean, like, the smart ones would. And so then you keep feeding them drinks and feeding them drinks and feeding them drinks. And then, like, you take them up to one of the rooms that you'd been assigned to. And then, you know, we'd be, like, making out and, like, trying to pull down her stuff. And, you know, then, like, he would, like, talk about holding her down. And, like, she, you know, she starts fighting back. And it's stupid at that point. I mean, come on. Like, we've come this far. And like, you went along with me. And so he would say, like, yeah, I just kind of pushed her down a bit. And then she just stopped moving. But he's saying he, like, pushed her down. And he's, like, saying, like, her shoulders. But then, like, when he motions it, he puts his arm across her neck. Hmm. And so he's like, yeah. And then I banged her. Hmm. And it was like, if he would have said, so you raped her, it would be like, no. No, I didn't do that. Which would be cognitive dissonance. I think that's a, that's what we're talking about here. It's cognitive right. dissonance. So you're, a, you're disengaged from the criminal culpability of your conduct. And that's not how I'm interpreting my actions or how I see myself. Like, I really don't see myself that way. I mean, we see this, like, that cognitive dissonance all the time in different arenas, right? Like, I'm not racist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I'm not misogynistic. I'm not a bigot. You know, I'm not this. I'm not that. You know, and if somebody says, well, the thing you just said, though, was actually really racist or like that was really a microaggression or, you know, whatever that is. It's like, no, 
I have plenty of friends who, you know, it's like that kind of thing where it's like that doesn't align with how I identify myself. And and the example you gave is great because that does talk about some of the elements that would would meet a criminal culpability checklist. For instance, in Texas, you're using force, pushing down uh, the alcohol would be uh, at least uh, a corroborative uh, circumstantial evidence towards either her inability to make that decision. Those Both of those things combined, certainly are, those are two separate elements that could be met. Right. Um, but if you don't have that force and you just have the alcohol in that, in that example, the, the, the system is, I think you said it best, not set up really to address those things. You have folks no. all the time that make outcries. I think a lot of them, why they go unreported uh, because maybe they did have too much to drink and they don't generally don't remember whether or not at the time or they, they wake up and they are aware that they had sex. They don't, but they don't remember having sex. They don't remember not saying no to having sex. They don't remember anything. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. uh, you have a culture that says, oh, well, you were raped, right? The, a lot of people would say, oh, if you don't remember, but you know you had sex, you were, you were raped. raped. Uh, which very well may be true. The The corollary to it is, it might not, and and there are facts that are left out because you have a lapse of knowledge, which also is sort of just expected when you have blackouts or brownouts or whatever that would be. Yeah. The the system is very much incapable of addressing that. Well, and I mean, like, and would it, it doesn't? I mean, just we know that like nationwide of like sexual assault that happens about a fourth of people will report, and nationwide about five percent will make it to trial. Well, how about this? How about the the it's a was lower, there a lot lower than that? Yeah, I mean, and that's so. I mean, that's just like such, and that's not like win the case. That's just like even make it to that point. Very few of them make it to trial, even in places that are are, are really desperately trying to make them go to trial. Even yeah. cases that probably shouldn't go to trial, trial. Uh, there are very few that actually go to trial. Make it. I mean, so I think it is. It's. Sorry. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I, I just had a quick, quick scenario. So how about if you get a male and a female, mm-hmm. and they're both really intoxicated. And and it's so subjective in the sense because we don't know he has to and she has to each be able to kind of try to guess what the other person's thinking or if their intention. Not, if we're not openly talking about it. If you're it. not openly in most and checking scenarios. It, right. Like we're not right. like, hey, are you okay? Like, are we okay? Is this cool? Like, are we, you know, do we need to stop? Are we, you know, having right. those clear continu- continued conversations? Yeah. Right. And so it, it's just, I think that's so it's 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 kind of hard right i mean when you when you have when you're both put in this situation like and you're bring you know you brought the the college right situation that's where you know a lot of people go out and drink and right. get really intoxicated and they go and they meet you know they meet right and i think part of that too is like getting back to like the shame of sexuality in our culture where it's like i need something that makes me feel less inhibited in order to express my sexuality you know or you know, the other thing about that is I think it's also very different when like I had one client who kind of put it, you know, had been having a discussion with male friends and they're like, well, you shouldn't have been like nice or like accepted a drink ever from anybody. And it's like, well, that's messed up because if somebody goes to a bar with the intent that if I feed this person more alcohol, mm-hmm. they are more likely to have sex with me than if I don't buy them any alcohol. There's a certain level that feels a little premeditated there. Right. I mean, I could under, well, I, I think, I think it's, 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 it's a slippery slope in a way because 
while a lot of guys and girls that matter right, i don't want to be heteronormative about like just that it always it happens within the confines of a male and female and a male being right the, mostly the male's the aggressor right i mean for the most part for the majority of cases like over like i think 98 percent of the time it's a male as the when, when we're talking about male and and on female i mean we're not talking about female on female or male on male which and, all happen right right um and female on male and female on male so i want to acknowledge that as well but in the state of Texas, I think it's very hard <laughs> legally to prove a female could rape a, a male, a sexually assault a male. Well, and having a, a male complainant who would be willing to come forward about that. Because, again, I think that's about normalizing. That's, again, I think we, like, make light of that. We joke about that. Right, which right. Is, which is really not okay. You know, I mean, and just, I think... Yeah, I think it gets really complicated of like, so then who feels okay to come in forward and like talk about that? And I think that goes back to, again, um, non, you know, genital non-concordance and like reactions from our genitals that do not align with consent. So one of the biggest problems is, let's say... Let me interrupt you really quick, though. I, I, I will tell you, in fact, we have, we have experience with a, a male victim of a female sexual assault. Yes. Uh, there were other power and control dynamics involved right. in that case, but uh, that that actually does happen. It's a lot more frequent. Than I think people acknowledge a lot of times it happens when there's power and control dynamics, yeah. um, you know, either workplace or otherwise uh, that that create the scenario for something to be done like that. But it but it certainly does exist. Right. But, uh, but I also think let's just be real when we're talking about the prosecution and the criminal justice system of these cases. It's almost always carte blanche right. a male perpetrator right yeah on a female right yeah and and i and i i wanted to talk about what you what you talked about the premeditated idea because i think there's also the stereotype of the guy the chivalrous person going out to a bar and and that they that it's not uncommon for the guy to be Offered to feel like they have to pay for the drinks or want to pay for those drinks. So so getting to the premeditated version of that is kind of hard to, and, and especially just to, to sort of overgeneralize it as a premeditation because the guy, I think there's also a stereotype and a, and a, uh, a, uh, what am I trying to say? The, uh, the male female relationship historical context of that is the guy paying for the date or paying for the drinks at the bar. It's kind of hard to, for me to say that that's just head hunting and premeditated. Or, or oh, even let's, can strokes. I take it a, I mean, you know, of every time, but if like the whole idea is I'm leaving my house dressed up with my cologne on or whatever. And like, I want to get laid tonight. Yeah. And so okay. I'm immediately hitting the door being like, I need yeah. to get you a drink. Let me get you a second. You want a third? How like, about this? So, so even with that, that in mind, I mean, it may not be to, just to have the, the intent to want to have sex with, with somebody just to say, okay, I want to go out here. I want to have sex. I want to go get laid cool. tonight. Right. Right on. Right. Yeah. So I see where you're, you're coming from with a premeditation because you already, you're out there trying. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, hooray, we can all have consensual sex. We have right. an app for everything. Like there's, <laughs> there's ways that you can do this but, without but requiring you're is any. The yeah. more, I guess the more, uh, if my sinister part is is saying I want to use alcohol method, as because a, I know if I keep I know. giving this person more, I'm more likely to get this ending that I want. But I think that's that's well. I mean, I know it happens. I just, in my experience, I don't think most guys go out and say I want to get this girl really liquored up, 
they might say, I want to get liquored up and they'll make me more funny. Well, no, and <laughs> this is the thing too that I think we have to be really aware of as well. Right. There's not like I there's not like a lot of rapists out there. Right. Right. But the people who, The scary ones. The, the ones that we we deem are that are Well and the people who really like there's a really clear objective here. Like there right. it's not I mean that's what like David Lisak found in that the undetected rapist. He's like it's not that there's like a lot of these people on the campus, but what it was is the ones who do this do it over and over and over again. And okay. I was gonna get to that too. Like right. how do, how do you identify the guy that throws the clone on and you know, puts the condom in his, in his wallet and gets the credit card ready to start keep buying drinks. Right. You know, uh, uh, which is a very different dynamic. So I don't want to do this broad stroke where it's like everybody who goes out and buys a cocktail for some a friend. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. of course not. I don't see that. It, you know, is that? And, and so I, I think, think it is a very small portion of the population that are kind of. I mean, it's very. And it's not enough to just uh, categorize it like, well, is it three drinks that they have to buy? Is it right, four drinks right. that make you do it? It's the intent behind the, the, intent. the, before you even go out, like where are you going with this and how far are you willing, willing to, take, to it? take it? Yeah. And, and getting into the, <coughs> that sub, uh, the, the non unspoken mindset of somebody, uh, is really hard to get into the mind of, right. of why they're doing it and how do you prove that? Where we see the, the, I mean, there was, um, that one documentary silence in the house of God, um, that talked about within the Catholic church, you know, the investigations they did on, you know, often, you know, pedophile priests and stuff. And I mean, they had reports that were like, these people are vipers. They will continue to harm people. We're seeing that they have this MO, like at one point, like, you know, showing that they had like bought an island because they were like, if you don't want to defrock them, we could just take them because they, they're not going to, there's no reparative therapy. There's nothing that's going to like fix this, but we should mm. separate them from society. Um, and they had like bought an island that they were thinking for a while and they like nixed that idea because they were finding, you know, in these different churches and it was across the world, it would be like 150 victims before, you know, children would come forward and be like, this is happening, you know, and it was just, you see, it's like these small portions of the population. And the David Lisek study that was also profound about that was it was these people weren't just committing these sexual assaults. It was like property violations, thefts. And so you really see it's like these people who were repeating to kind of do this are doing lots of different criminal actions, mm. you know? So it was just like, yeah, this isn't like everyone. Cause I think sometimes we can become over general, right. You know, but really just, there's these like small portion of the population that are really going out and like willing to cross the, the boundaries that we've agreed upon as a community of what's acceptable behavior. The, the mores that, that like we agree or the social together, contracts, the social contracts yeah. right that we agree together like this isn't okay like but, that's not something we can do but, but the where where the rubber meets the road is that we conflate uh these prosecutions and a lot of times what we're seeing is is i think a lot of jurors expect the stranger rape case right, i think what's what's becoming more normal is is acknowledging that that scenario these minute minute amount of people are engaging in that kind of mm -hmm. premeditated conduct that, that are utilizing the alcohol facilitator, drug facilitated right. sexual assault in that way. But you, you occasionally have these cases where people are not engaged in the premeditation, but find themselves in a situation where they're not checking in with their, with this person. Partner. They're not, they're not actively and continually getting the consent. consent. You have, alcohol or drugs involved, you have lapses in memory, uh, and you have folks saying, oh, if you woke up and that happened to you, that's rape. And we have that, that broad definition that's not actually meeting the elements. Right. And again, we get the difference between criminal mm -hmm. versus 
personal experience. Yeah, and, and it doesn't lessen the personal experience. No. Does it make it any better that it wasn't a stranger? Right. Like, Let me ask this. And then who raped who if, if, let's say, both people, you know, if we're talking about a man and a woman, and they go out, they go, they get drunk. They're neither one are really communicating. They're just kind of in, in you know, using assumptions and, and intuition and trying to read the other person's intent. And let's assume that none of them are saying no, no, you know, like right. not screaming, not pushing away or anything. And they right. both have sex. And so it really comes down to one person saying, you know, waking up and saying, oh, did I do this? I don't really remember. Was I raped? And I think partially, though, that's also the reason why it's really hard for juries to convict in these cases. Because I think when we're like when people are start to get really like reflective of like, oh, shit, have I done this before? Right. And so then if it's like, well, I'm not a rapist, so they can't be a rapist. But then the question is, does it, is it come come down to the person that says, I think I might have been raped? And then law enforcement then has to follow up. I mean, this is why I think this is like we see the fallout of like a system that's like really not equipped to handle that. Because how I'm handling that as a counselor is very different. Right. Right, of course. Right, right. Like, so that's like a very different situation. And how law enforcement is handling and how politics is handling it. Because politics is sort of, I, I think my main gripe it, with it is that politics is taking the social definition of these words, acknowledging that there is trauma involved, and then demanding criminal action, where the criminal uh, environment is not set up to prosecute what they are deeming as the, the wrong action. Right. And I mean, we've talked about like the, a lot of, you know, the research um, that we see done about that, like, like Michigan State. I'm blanking on her name, um, but she's a researcher who specializes in this, who talked about. Um, Brown. Oh, was that it? I'm not sure. Oh, Michigan State in that. Um, I can't remember. Danae Brown? No, no, no. Brene Brown is she's in Texas and she's on vulnerability oh, and shame. I, yeah, it's Re- I thought it was Rebe- I think it's Rebecca. Rebecca. I think it's Brown, though. Okay, but I can't remember, but she's from Michigan State, and she does a lot of research on this and, you know, showed that, like, the more interaction um, survivors have in the criminal justice system, the greater the flare-up of PTSD symptoms. So it's like... Okay, yeah, meaning going through the... The the, the more people have interaction, Uh like, the further they go through the criminal justice process, the more symptoms of PTSD they're going to have. Right. I think they call it re-victimization. Correct. Okay. Right. So just this, like, this entire process is just kind of like this ongoing experience of, like, I don't have agency. I'm having to, like, answer questions. Other people are kind of taking ownership of my story and how it's shared and who we talk about it with. And, like, I'm having to defend my experience and, like, do this in public displays in front of strangers and have people who are actively trying to trip me up on that, you know, and... Um, and like we talked about earlier, am I too emotional? Am I not emotional enough? Like, right. you know, um, are people in my community like writing about this on Facebook? Yeah. You know, when are mean, my colleagues, are my colleagues judging me? judging me, you know? And so it's like, you know, and am I losing my job because I'm getting, um, you know, the subpoena and I have to appear in court right. and like my and job's like, uh, nope. What's this about? Right. Yeah. And like, so firing you, um, you know, and so you're like losing your job and. And, and not to minimize that, but it, on the defense side, for our clients that go through that process who are found not guilty or whatever it is, we call that being on the roller coaster. Right. Right. They put them on the roller coaster, it goes up and down, and their life is in jeopardy and all that. Uh, I want to circle back to the hypothetical uh, 
uh, Jason gave. And I think a long time ago I had showed you this image and I finally found it. Uh, I was looking for it, uh, which sort of talks about, I guess this is sort of like <laughs> the, the, the scare guys have with, with uh, this conversation coming forward is if they're, the finger's going to be pointed towards them, which I think you can take a whole lot of uh, context out of that. And most guys are not engaging in this, but nonetheless, what, what the popular culture is, is, uh, you know, sort of bringing to the forefront and the question that Jason had is poignant. And these are, these are advertisements that are out and around in the city. Uh, and it says, uh, Jake was drunk. Josie was drunk. Jake and Josie hooked up. Josie could not consent. Uh, the next day, Jake was charged with rape. And it's, it's a basically an advertisement that's put out there to men to, to say, hey, look, this happens. You're a rapist. Right? And, and that's sort of a shocking advertisement. Uh, and I, I, do you remember me showing you that? I think I showed you that I didn't. several years ago. I'll show you what it says. It's right here. Oh, okay. It's and it's a uh, think about it. Be responsible. I'm trying to see who the agency at the bottom of it is that put that out there. Can't quite read it. I don't know if you can read that. I cannot. I cannot. But wow. Yeah. No, I don't remember oh, wow. that. No, I mean I've seen like there was one that was kind of talking about alcohol and like I know there was one where it was just like you see kind of a, a woman's figure and um, like some empty bottles and it's like this only looks like an opportunity to someone thinking like a rapist. Yeah. Like there was that, which I thought was a very different very different. Very different. Th this is this is really ambiguous, right? Well, but it's bad. It's a it's a, No, I don't think that's helpful in the conversation. It's not helpful at all. <laughs> and but I think, I, I think where that's where, have, where like, a lot of guys think it's it goes. And I think which is also confusing because that's not how it happens. No, not at all. Right. So, I mean, this is the other thing, too. That's like, you're going to ruin this person's life. Like, you know, and it's just like, you know, they're like, they're going to become a convicted sex offender. And it's like, how, I, like the, the minimal, I, I just, and even times when I know people, when we had gone to court and people were convicted, which was usually a stranger. Yeah. <laughs> right. It was usually those, the standard kind of stereotypical conditions. Um, they didn't become registered sex offenders. And they're convicted? I mean, I mean, like, but some of them, it was like, I thought it, would, like, it was reduced or they would have less time. It was Oh, they're all, the ones that we did together are all registered sex offenders, I assure you. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Brian does it. Oh, yeah, that is. Brian does it. When he was a prosecutor, you're going to be impressive. <laughs> yeah. Are but, you charged but, with possession of marijuana? DWI. No. I just, I just no. drove. No. You're a sex You're a registered no. sex <laughs> No. What you didn't know was by testifying as an expert that you are now a registered sex offender. Yeah, you, you are now. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I, I think there's a, there's just a lot of misinformation, a I lot agree. of, a lot of fear around it. And I think. Which doesn't lead the, to conversation. Exactly. The, the one thing that is missing is just continued dialogue. Right. And for young, young people. They're definitely not talking about well, it. Well, no, and I think, uh, yeah, and what's really important, I remember there was a, a podcast in I Can't Place Now, but it was, you know, also talking about people who then are deeply wanting to rehabilitate um, and talk about, like, I realize um, a lot of factors that played into me doing inappropriate behavior. That's not okay. Um, and I really want to look at, like, how can we be part of a community that helps that, like, explore this behavior and like find resolution. Um, and there was a person on podcast saying how 
you know, there's this person who acknowledged like I, you know, I had done that and I realized like I was wrong and I'm really trying to change and explore like what led me to this and be able to talk to other people. And they were like, you can't come in this conversation. Like you can't be there. And finally the person was kind of like, I kind of don't understand. Do you just want me to kill myself? Yeah. Per, I mean, like where, where do I go? And so society and, wants them to not exist. Anymore, and so, right? and I think, and again, there's a difference between those who like, don't give up, uh, you know, like they're going to continue to harm right. people until the day they die. And that's right. what they want to do. Um, but I think it is like as a culture, if we want to move forward and reduce interpersonal violence, right. Um, because we know this is occurring in a lot of contexts, not just within sexual abuse and sexual assault, but then physical abuse and, you know, physical assault and like these other kind of crimes. Um, how do we widen this conversation to talk about as a community, what are factors that are leading to people feeling entitled to objectify and have power and control and want that over another, right? Because I think that's also the difference that gets lost in that conversation. You know, I think this happens a lot with celebrities mm-hmm. where people are like, oh, they just want to get a piece of that money. They just want to get a piece of that fame. So they're accusing this person, you know, and they can have sex with so many people. And I think but what's hard about this is if we're actually talking about people who are rapists, it, of most we know, you know, especially serial rapists are married. I know we've had cases, you know, they're married. They can have consensual sex. Oh, wow. Really? They don't they just... want to have consensual sex. The arousal is from the non-consent. The I arousal guess. is from power and control over another human, being able to make someone afraid right. and harm them and have them right. be scared of them. And I think it's really remembering that in these situations of like when we're talking about that kind of individual, like because people are like, well, they could have consensual sex. It's like, yeah, but that's not what they're getting aroused from. They're getting aroused from being able to force somebody against their will. And I guess those would be like uh, the... the in BDSM context, like the dominant. Yeah, I think there's very healthy kink, right? And right. that's that very I, I don't know. <laughs> right. There's very healthy I'm not saying I'm doing well, that. Well, I'm just saying Well and I don't want to like kink shame, right? Because there's like very healthy consensual dynamics. I mean this is one of the things that I would talk about with prevention educators. They were like for all the flack people give into like the BDSM community, those people know consent. Right. Like there is like really Cause, cause healthy ongoing conversations about what are your verbals? You could what are your, die. What are your verbals? <laughs> right? so what are your non-verbals? Yeah. What are you like? What are you willing to do? What's on the table? What's absolutely not on the table? Right. You know, we have all these different kind of safe words and s- gestures that we can have with each other. I mean, the level of like because again, when we're having positive, healthy views of sexuality, then we feel safe to talk about it. We feel safe to have open discussions about that. Right. You know which. Which we don't, you know, and how many, I mean, people just don't even know their own anatomy that don't even know, you know, body reactions that are going on that are blamed. I mean, I think that goes back to some of the, you know, a male can't be raped, you know, these kind of myths. And it's like, well, if you right, the biggest one is like, you have an erection, erection, yeah, you know, and you have an erection. How could I, how 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 could she rape? Right. When, you know, and I think the same thing happens a lot for, um, for, you know, kind of women when it's like, oh, well, you were wet. So you must have wanted it. Um, and again, this is that genital non-concordance where like we can have genital reaction that has nothing to do with my consent or arousal. Uh, you see a lot of that, especially in kid sexual assault uh, dynamics right. because the kids are reacting to the stimuli. They don't understand it. They don't have the cognitive development to understand no, and that doesn't mean the I'm relational saying, paradigms. Right? Yeah. And yeah. No, I mean, and this is really too... Um, there's a really great book by Emily Nagoski um, who wrote Come As You Are, which is about sexuality um, and like the body. And she talks a lot about this when they would do research um, for having like a board that would be placed over the lap of individuals, male and female. And they'd be shown like a variety of images. 
and they would click whether or not that they felt aroused or not looking at the images. It was a research study. Okay. And then for men, they would have something below that little table that could um, measure the tension of like if they had an erection or not. Oh, their pants or something? But yeah, in their episode, they could see like how oh. much of a reaction where they were getting from their genitals, right? Right. And for women, they had a way to like see like the vaginal lubrication. Okay. And to see like how much was going on. Right. And so for men, what they were looking at is how often were they getting kind of an erectile response and how often they were saying, I'm aroused. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. So for men, about 50% of the time. I mean, I'm me showing at, arousal. Me at 15, that would be. <laughs> well, this is what they kind of talk That's about, though, crazy. too. Sometimes it was like that there would be a reaction that had nothing to do with the situation going on. Like, I'm not thinking I'm aroused right now, but my body's having a reaction. So, right. for men, about 50% of the time, there's this overlap of I'm aroused and I'm having an erectile, like a, a reaction. Right. Right. Um, so, that means there's other times when they're having an arousal reaction by right. the images they're being shown, which can be totally random images. Um, that their their genitals are reacting, but they don't actually feel or breeze, <laughs> right? Or sensation, right? Sensation. Body sensation, the sensuality of our bodies. For women, the 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 times where I'm having a reaction, um, and the woman was saying I'm aroused, ten percent. Oh wow! So there was often times where there was a response happening that had nothing to do with their arousal. So we kind of are wired differently. So what's interesting about that though is, I mean, it's kind of like I always say, you know, there's like. That there's those reactions going on when a woman's in childbirth. She's not aroused. <laughs> you know, this is about like, this is about a bodily reaction. Right. You know, and I loved Emily Nagoski kind of put it like, because this is again used in a lot of languaging, like a lot of, and we, we think of film and story as the vehicle for how we normalize. Mm-hmm. So why it's important that everybody's represented in story and film so we can have like symbols of this so we can see what this looks like. Um, how often that is like, well, you can, you wanted it. You said no, but I could tell your body was saying yes. You know, these kind of things like she pulled out from the book, um, which I I haven't read and I haven't seen, The Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh You know, the kind of the first scene where um, I think he's like doing some BDSM spanking her. um, And she talks about feeling like humiliated and not into it. And like all of the languaging from her perspective is like not enjoying it at all. And she's afraid. Um, But then he like touches, you know, her vulva and is like, but look how wet you are. So you must want it. And again, that that's held up as like, this is evidence that your body can't lie, you know? And it's like, that's not, that's a really messed up message. Right. Um, And I, I, you know, she kind of uses the term, like, if you bite into a wormy apple and your mouth waters, you don't say like, oh, you really wanted to eat that wormy apple. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Like, this is a reaction your body is having to just like the stimulus that's happening. Right. Or like the, uh, Emily Nagoski also gave this really, I mean, it's like, Tough example, but I thought it was really powerful. She had a male in one of her kind of groups where they were doing questions and research. And he said, yeah, he remembered he, there was a guy and he had a lot of shame and he was sharing it. He had been at a party and went up to get his guy friend and his guy friend um, was raping. He was having sex with a girl who was unconscious. Jesus. And he was like, hey, do you want to like hit this man? And he was like. Like, like it's a, like a drug? Right. And he's like, Jeez. no, we need to go. And he said he felt a lot of shame about it because he, he's like, I didn't stop. And, you know, like, and the, his friend, when he said we got to go, like, stopped and he came and he's like, but I didn't tell anybody. Like, I and didn't I call didn't, the cops. I didn't I call didn't the cops. Do I didn't do something. anything. And part of it was because he had started to have an erection in response to that. Ooh. And he was like, 
I'm, he wasn't aroused, but he was like, does this make me a rapist? Like, I'm a me, bad I'm a person. Like, that I'm a I like sick to fuck. See. That, and he was like, because yeah. he's like, I didn't like seeing it, but like my body was having this reaction. Right. You know, she kind of described it as like you walk into the restaurant and your mouth, you know, it's like you have this like, it's a restaurant, right? And right. so you like see this image and it's like, so you have this reaction. Right. And so she talked about like, it made her so sad, you know, that his, the cultural shame around that, that we don't talk about this non-concordance felt that he couldn't say like, what the f- are you doing, man? You know, and like pull him off and like call the cops and like make sure she was okay. You know, it's like these kind of cultural shaming things that make us feel like we can't talk about this. Right. Because we're terrified what it means about me as an individual. Yeah. That's, wow. That's great. Yeah. That's, that's, that's interesting. Right. Yeah. That he just said, oh fuck, I must be really messed up. Fucked up. Cause right. obviously I like right. rape. Right. And it was like, and I, even though it's like, I'm like, no, I don't, what are I you don't doing? Like like, I don't like this. Like, this isn't okay. Intellectually, right. co- cognitively. cognitively, but my body's having this reaction. So I must be fucking weird. Right. Which again, the same for like you talked about with like child victims and, you know, and things where there's this reaction where it's like, what does this mean? Like I'm having these sensations. Yeah, what do I like it? But right. I but like I don't it. like it. Right. Like there's my, like everything in my feels con- good, but I don't like it. But I don't like it. Right? right. You know, I kind of have often tried to talk about it in terms of like, um, I'm super ticklish. I really hate being tickled. <laughs> like I like, really, really hate being tickled. And my older sister would like hold me down and like tickle me, you know, and she's like five years older and I would be like, I would hate it. And she's like, well, if you didn't like it, then why are you smiling and laughing? <laughs> and it was like so infuriating because yeah. I was like, I can't not, I mean, I was like trying to swing an elbow or face, mm-hmm. but like, I'm like laughing and smiling, you right. know? And it's like, that was my body reaction to that. It right. had nothing to do with me smiling because I'm like enjoying it. Right. Kind of like when I would laugh at a serious conversation, I'm argument I'm having with my girlfriend is really inappropriate. And I know she, right. It's angering her. Right. But I'm laughing at this. Well, and that goes back to what we talked about earlier. Some of the hormones that are released when we're in activation. Yeah. You know, like you have like oxytocin, which can make us giggle and <laughs> laugh, you know, when people are talking about stuff that's really upsetting. And the same way I think you see when somebody gets like a sudden cancer diagnosis or they're like the laughter at the funeral. Right. right? You know, yeah, where you have right. people like, <laughs> you know, and it's just this very nervous, like trying to release this activation from the system. But again, can feel really counterintuitive. Right. Or how we interpret that. Like if I'm trying to have a serious conversation with you and like really upset and you're and laughing, laughing at me and, you're like, and it's like, yeah, that, that, wow. I could understand how that's upsetting to you. Right. Yeah. Right. It's like, wow. Okay. All right. That's how yeah. you feel. One of the more, I just, the memories that sticks in my mind is uh, and my, my dad is, uh, has a, a leg issue and says so somewhat of a de- debilitating issue. And he's got these dogs, like huge dogs. And so these dogs just run roughshod over him. Right. And, uh, and I'm out there just throwing a Frisbee for the dog. Right. And then I throw the Frisbee kind of near him and the dog just full speed runs and lunges and just knocks him over oh, on no. his ass. Right. Oh, and my natural, my response was to just crack up laughing because it was just such a comical <laughs> vision where, just, where you just see this huge motion. dog yeah. hit my dad just square and like dropped him on his ass. And he is just livid, right? He's right. so super upset and all the more infuriated by the fact that yeah, I can't just, even go over there and help him. You're up. just busting up, just busting up laughing. I could not do anything. Right. My body was just shutting down. I knew he was, a like in hurt pain. Yeah. in pain, embarrassed, continue embarrassed, and that what I was doing was going to further humiliate, hurt the situation. Yeah. But I couldn't stop. I and I remember that moment it sticks in my mind when I realize 
sometimes there are just things you can't, you know, your your body just will do, even right. though it's not the, yeah, because sometimes maybe it's just because it's the only thing you can do. Right. Um, and, and to summarize and quote, the most appropriate source on, on this topic, which is uh, R. Kelly, uh, my mind is telling me no. But my body, oh. my body is telling me yes. After like talking no about sexual, child, <laughs> child <laughs> sexual, like, we were talking. Can we just like edit? Can I get like a can, name? Can get like a... the witness protection. Like this is not. Like, we're just gonna change it. Yeah, so somebody's gonna be like, say, hey, wait, wait a minute. Hey, wait, I heard you on that. You were in R. Kelly. <laughs> yeah, and you liked R. You Kelly. You participated in that. Yeah. I don't think I can counsel with you. Yeah. That <laughs> there ain't nothing wrong with a little bump and grind as long as they're consenting. <laughs> Consent, partners, consenting right. partners. Which is, is something that... Uh, of he, age consent. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> he, he never managed to to, uh, to work into his lyrics or life, apparently. Right. <laughs> Dude, how, so we did about, so far, two... Almost two hours. Almost two hours. Yeah. Are you has, there, has there been anything that you feel like has gone unanswered or something that you want to add context to anything that we've mm. been talking about? Besides the fact that we know you're not a fan of R. Kelly. <laughs> keep walking through that um (laughs) (laughs) um, i'm trying to think if there was anything else that i mean or something that you is there anything else that you feel like i haven't gotten to touch on well i'm interested because you said you were born right in st louis right i'm really scared where this is about to go (laughs) no 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 No, i mean i i I lived in st louis for a little bit oh cool cool yeah i went uh i did undergrad in lindenwood university in st charles missouri okay okay Where, where are you from in st louis um Grew up around like kind of South County area, but then lived in South City. I love South City. Yeah, South City. So you grew up in South County, like what? Webster Groves? No, area? no. Um, I'm trying to think what's around there. Like, uh, f- what is it? Full of not, not, not as far as Fulton, Arnold. Not, Arnold, as, not okay. that far south. Like a little bit further in than that. Okay, like um, Lindbergh, Lee May Ferry. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Like like Bevo Mill. A little further out than that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Brian has probably I don't yeah, know has any. Yeah, no, don't worry about it. You're good. I have no idea. What I love. Okay, about. I really enjoyed St. Louis. And then the other uh, the other day, I would say a couple of weeks ago, I was at a friend's party, and we were there. I don't know how you feel. You're a native St. Louisian, right? And do you like it? Well, it, there's good and bad. Okay, but do do you do you like your do you like St. Louis? As a city, you think it's there. There are things that I really love and appreciate about it. Yeah, I mean, there was a. I grew up as a broke kid, so there was a, a commitment to like free culture. So Forest Park, which is the old like nineteen oh four World's Fair. Yes, the, yeah, Forest um, Park's great. Yeah. The art museum, the zoo, the science center, like those were yeah. all free. So when you don't magic have a lot of house. money, the Magic House, um, the Muni, which was the open air amphitheater, they had yeah. free tickets if you came early, and so you could like hang out. So like ha- having like St. Louis Botanical Garden, you know, there was just a lot of things. There that, were like, a lot. Of having not a lot of money it felt like oh i could still go do stuff and that was really nice so i spoke with somebody at this party at a friend's party and she was from st louis she mm-hmm. was from like near Florence. she was from florson actually okay. Okay. and she's like i hate st louis it's a horrible place and blah 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 i mean she she couldn't hate it enough right. i mean before i found out i was kind of already like no it's not that bad and she's like no it's bad it's really bad I used to work at the trauma center there, and it's horrible. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, I mean, okay, but it's a big city. I think you'd find that in a lot of big cities. You have good areas, you have bad areas, right? Right. 
And she was just saying, no, the social stratification there is bad. I'm like, okay, I mean, I, I get it, you know, with the yeah, burbs, but I think an, that's a lot. In, well, and there's an incredible amount of racism. Right, but I think that's not, I don't think that's necessary. Well, I'll take, except, not exception, but I'll take issue in the fact that I think it's more diverse than some other. Diversity doesn't preclude racism. No, okay. right, I agree. <laughs> like, but more, so, yeah. more inclusive. In certain areas. Uh, you know, I grew up with a lot of my friends being called racial epithets in grade school and um, experienced a lot of people going through that stuff as well as homophobia. Um, we had a huge influx of Bosnian refugees right. due to the war um, and people shouting racial things at them um, and kind of hearing that pretty consistently as well as being aware of like certain areas where, I mean, it was discovered like real estate agents wouldn't take people of color to certain areas. Um, and so really stratifying who was allowed to live where. So, Yeah. That was, you know, it's, it sucks. It sucks. Like there, you know, and there's also some great people and, and there's also like some ingrained stuff, you know? Um, so I think it's, it's the things that you see anywhere when you live long enough. You know, I have clients who tell me very clearly about the prejudice they experience here. Right. In Austin. In Austin, and I think. And in San Marcos. And like, San you know, Marcos. Like, and again, because yeah. we're talking about individuals who choose to do that. I mean, it's like, yeah, I was like, you know, when I went to Mizzou, they're, you know, the Aryan nation lived nearby. So they'd come do parades. In Colombia? Yeah. Okay. You know, hate groups exist. Oh, <laughs> like they're, they're here they're, too. They're I mean, here. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's yeah. just like, and so it's, yeah, I think it's just uh, the level of awareness, you know. I mean, is there like. But I don't know why I was so defensive because I, I maybe because in my mind, St. Louis has such a sweet spot. I, I really enjoyed, um, you know, I enjoyed like little hidden gems. This is what I liked about the city. Right. Okay. So you go downtown and yeah, whatever you see downtown and it's kind of just very, I mean, besides the arch and some other awesome, like historically old buildings for right. the United States, it, right. it, it's just like a downtown, right? right. You go to Dallas, you see their downtown, you go right. to San Antonio, you see it downtown, right. whatever. Um, but when you kind of delve off the beaten path and maybe you go exploring little neighborhoods, if you go to like Central West End or the, mm -hmm. the Del Mar Loop or right. South City, right, 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 South Town. Lafayette Square, Soulard, other little things that are really cool, yeah. I think. No, definitely. And there's definitely flavors there. There's definitely beauty there. You know, there's definitely awesome things there. Um, <sighs> and I think it's just being honest about, like, all of it. Right. You know, and just being able to, like, and I think that's part of, like, what our whole conversation we're talking about today is, like, I want, you know, and I know I'm biased. I'm a counselor. It's like, I just want us to be right. able to talk about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it was, like, for me, that was growing up in that, like, that really started that for me. It's like, like a little fourth grader um, seeing my friends cry. Because kids calling them names because of the color of their skin on the playground. And like seeing that and being like, that's not okay. Right. Like, and, uh, we need to talk about that and we need to talk about like what's going on with that, you know? And so I think that's just like that wanting to witness and hold space for people to share like their experience and their story has always kind of been the theme of what I want to provide is safe spaces for people to share and talk about their experience and explore like what would it like if I chose to be different? or embody my life differently than I have so far? And what would that look like? And what holds me back from being able to do that? You know, whether that was like in history class when I'm reading like documents from people who have been dead for centuries mm -hmm. or I'm in anthropology and I'm reading bones from people who have been dead, you know, for even longer. Um, it's always been the same. I want to witness people because people's stories are important. Right. And they're a part of something much larger. And I want everybody to know and feel like they have a safe place to be witnessed. Because I think a lot of us don't. And that creates a lot of the problems that we're talking about today. 
is not feeling like you have safe witnesses to talk about what's coming up for you and what your struggles are. Right. And we lose track of how to relate and engage with each other when we can't talk about it. Awesome. And really quickly, I mean, I'm interested because you grew up there and when you were talking about the, the Bosnian immigrants and, and getting, and they would get backlash, right. uh, they're white. I mean, they're white people, right? They're Caucasian. What do you mean, skin color? <laughs> yeah, 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 skin like, color. Okay, I mean, okay. they're not. They're not black. They're. I mean, their their race is white, right? I mean, their skin color, right? Would not be. You would. So it'd be more like kind of a bigotry by virtue of them. They're not necessarily looking different than. Like how you categorize like being prejudiced against because of like your ethnicity. Their ethnicity or their their culture was that more of a. Well, I, I mean, I just. Because the Italians went through that, right? Irish people went through that. Jews went through that. Yeah, uh, lots of people have had the turn, right? I mean, our, our culture is like based upon the decimation of an entire culture you know, that continues to happen to this day. So we seem to like follow a pretty consistent <laughs> pattern of picking new people that we like to say are like to say are the the, the, and the are other the problem, the and other are the other, right. and like who's not wanted right now. But you when know? I was in St. Louis, that's only a relatively recent phenomenon. We haven't been doing that since the history of time or anything like that. Right, tribalism right, right, right. Romans that. didn't enslave the Egyptian or the Jews didn't you know the Egyptians didn't enslave the Jews there's the, some history there's Romans some history. didn't enslave people do you think uh, from when we talk about uh, the brain and the way that you've been talking about that are are there sort of are are those attributes set in stone or or can they be corrected neuroplasticity until the day we die meaning things can be rewired I think we do need to be aware of when we're looking at injuries to the actual brain, you know, like like TBIs, right? Like traumatic brain injury or things that like strangulation can cause. C- what is it? CTN? C- isn't like, there's an acronym that I hear for, for uh, something to do with brain injury with football players. And it's like CTE. CTE. Yeah, I, it's chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Right. And so there's, yeah. I mean, if there's, if we're talking about that, like if there's like a literal physical damage in that regard, Encephalo- but I, encephalopathy oh. wow. caused by repeated head injuries. Right. Right. I mean, like, in, like when you talk about TBI too, like um, for soldiers who've been around explosions, right. Like in having the concussive, that, like, the concussive pr- yeah. pressure of like having that explosion repeatedly, um, being aware of how that, that can create limitations. But we do know that people, our brain wants to regrow. It wants to build new pathways, you know, in the ways that we engage and relate to each other. Um, I, I'm just constantly amazed. I feel like we're kind of unicorn levels of magic. You know, it's like they were talking about studies where they noticed with children who were in really abusive households, um, they were thinning the lining around the cortical of their brain that was in charge of visual and auditory. Oh, wow. So it's like the kid can't run away. But their brain was shrinking, so it didn't have to hear or see as well. Because what they're wow. hearing and seeing is scary. Yeah. And, and they're trying to leave. Well, so let me ask you this, though. I, kind of what I was getting at. Do you think there's, I mean, genes have a lot to do with. Like epigenetics our, that we're seeing yeah. and the transfer of. Well, and I think what about, I mean, is there a gene for bias? Is there a gene for poor decision making? Oh, well, I mean, some of this is all, we're still expanding and learning. Like our knowledge base on this is growing exponentially because of our ability to have machinery that can see, right? Like functional MRIs, right? Have brought us a long way. And what like we're able to like track mapping. and see and brain mapping and be like, oh, like we didn't even know this was kind of here, you know? And, and so I think we're learning more and more with epigenetics and seeing, as well as like even just recently getting to realizing like, oh, like we're genetically passing trauma huh. through generations. 
I know? heard about that. Right. I heard that and on so the, really like a Joe Rogan podcast. And so it's interesting just if like, oh, like things that often I feel like are carried, but then it's when people are able to like, again, and that's a privilege. So I just also, when I have that, that's a very privileged conversation that we have the funds or means to go receive counseling, take time out of work. Right. Um, you know, and that's, that's a huge privilege. So I know yeah. we're talking from a very privileged perspective about that. So I want to acknowledge it. But that ability to pause and start to rewire our brain through having safe support systems that can help us build those skill sets to explore different pathways. You know, it's like, yeah, again, like it's really hard for me and my nervous system to respond if I'm homeless, right? If I have a lot of these, like these things going on in my life that make it very difficult for me to feel a homeostasis because I don't have security on like a lot of levels, right? And so I think that's when I talk about it, there being kind of privilege inherent in this is like, yeah, it's tough. You know, when I was seeing elementary school kids um, in St. Louis inner city, you know, and you have kids who are homeless. Wow. Or like, I feel really bad wow. because we're like killing the turtles that we find in the train system. And I feel bad because I like the turtles, but like we're hungry. Right. Eat the turtles. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's, that's hard, yeah. you know, to have like, and again, and this is where you see like, that's hard for me to focus in my classroom, <laughs> get good grades. Right. And like part of my system, or if I'm getting like, I'm going well, through. Well, you're hungry. I'm hungry. Right? How do I sit still? Yeah. You know, or being, if you know your smell because you're, you're living outside and, and I, your kids are judging you. Right. You know, yeah. and that social connection, you know, right. all these things that are like interfering with my ability to achieve as well as others who have right. those things, which means like further on success. And how does this set me up? Those ACEs again, that ACEs study of like, how does this set me up to start taking away options for myself? And so, yeah, I think we're still learning like how much of, you know, what's the combo of this being passed on, the environmental factors, you know, kind of things that are already set up for me, like I'm more likely because again, like there's lots of things epigenetics we know could set us up for ha having a tendency towards something. But if I have a supportive environment, it doesn't have to click on because I'm, I'm held and able to work through that. So they're kind of like not doomed by the genetics and we can regrow if we're able to get these healing spaces. But I think it's like, how do people like hide access to some of the resources we need behind doors? Or we get to kind of the double edge of the ingenuity quality of America of like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Oh, right. Because right, the shout out to that is if you're somewhere you don't want to be, it's because you're not willing to work hard determination, enough. Self-determination, self. Right. There's a shout out to yeah. that. You know, it's like so being aware of how we can kind of set up dynamics within cultures that keep the people who are already kind of set up to struggle with this even further out of the ability to heal from that. Now, do you think my, this is, I'm, I've always been interested in, in one's IQ and the study of, of, of quantifying and, and, you know, and quantifying intelligence. Cause I don't, I mean, I really don't know how anybody could really do that to some degree of certainty or, or, or the veracity of, but that being said, and I, and I don't know, but I was reading, a, I, read, I read a book where they, and I say they, scientists have come up, or this company that has come up with a, a method to which you stare, you're supposed to stare like a dot in a blank wall, and they have like cameras or lasers like in your eyes, and, and it, it could apparently accurately predict what your IQ is to a certain, I don't know, hundredth of interesting yeah have you heard of that or no, no? Okay. but i mean that's not my area of like expertise so in a way because whenever you took a test i mean there's always 
biases. There's always right. Some of it's just like how good you are at taking tests. Right. How good are you are taking tests? There's a lot of variables. Right. Right. A lot of variables saying that you could always just kind of be dismissive and say, "Well, I'm a bad test taker," or "This is culturally." Uh, biased against me because I don't know what the hell right. a she shed is or if I'm living, you know, if I'm a, whatever, whatever you know, right. I, um, how the, the questions and the prompts are formulated, all that. But if there's a test that could kind of take away any of that, of those variables and it's just more mapping your brain and then, you know, mm-hmm. and it says, okay, that's what your IQ is. Right. But that's think, pretty scary, I think, or well, not but scary, but it's, it has so little eventual determination about how you will function, right? That's is that emotional but does intelligence? It is that like an emotional intelligence factor? Is that looking at how like there's people, you know, we talk about like common sense, street smarts, mm-hmm. like your ability to like you can be real book smart, right, and be and not know a lot, not a lot. That's right. <laughs> so I think that you know that True. doesn't have it. You know, your ability like you can know a lot of information and not know how to talk to people, unless you live in a library, which you would get along just well swell right i i think it's just yeah nature nurture and and iq is kind of a, a soft um science as well uh i i think you but know like what's like, determining that and what are we including in that and like what does that really even like say about an individual yeah but we could all agree that there's like geniuses right i mean like einstein i'm not as smart as are einstein. there different people that have like a like an intellect that they can focus or compute at a certain level sure um but you know I, but at the end of the day it's like what does that mean to you in terms of like how, how does my IQ affect my ability to embody and live my life experience? I think for us, one of the things that that has to come into play is when we talk about culpability, culpability. right? Like, do you have a high enough right. mental awareness to know what you are doing? Mm-hmm. Well, right. what's right and wrong given a situation, right? Right. right. So very different right? in that kind of modality. Yeah. Very interesting. All right. Well, I, I really enjoyed having you here. Thank you. I don't know. I mean, we're, ass- I'm assuming we're concluding. Probably want to go. I don't know. Because I-35 is the best. Yeah. I really enjoyed having you here. Thank you so much for coming. Absolutely. Thank I you found you me. the most biased individual I've ever met. Ever. I'm yeah, really very. super biased. Super. Super. Super biased. Also thoroughly entertaining. And very, <laughs> very intelligent. It's hard we, to keep up with you both. We, we really appreciate no, no. it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you. Awesome.